0: Hi, it's Renchex and welcome to my podcast. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass is great, but no, no, it's not brought to you by anyone. It's brought to you by me, okay? Now, I want to ask you a little favor, but first, if you want to skip this part, there are timestamps in the description, so just jump ahead if you want to, no hard feelings. I still appreciate you tuning in. So anyway, the audience for this podcast has been growing steadily and now I'm receiving a lot of great feedback from you guys. And it really inspires me to keep doing this. I need you to help me spread the word. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with someone. Send them a link to this episode or your favorite episode. Just send them a link if you think they might benefit from listening to this podcast. Or post it on social media, rate it on iTunes, like it on YouTube, leave a comment. All of those things really help promote it. I would really appreciate if you go ahead and do at least one of those. Send a link. Social media, you know, etc. You get it. Now, the following is the conversation with Nathan Gamble. It's a long conversation. Getting into it, we didn't know where we're going with it. Um, and you know what, those three and a half hours flew by like a minute for me, I really enjoyed this conversation, Nathan is such an interesting person, he started playing poker when he was 12, and of course we talk a bit about how this unusual childhood shaped who he is, we talk about him winning his two WSOP bracelets, his four years in army, and somehow our conversation segues into the topic of war and gets all serious and somber. Oh, and there's uh, somewhere in between there there's also Nathan's crazy story about being kidnapped. Yeah, I know. And um, there's Galfun Challenge poker on Twitch. There's a lot. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Nathan Gamble. Nathan, thanks thanks for making the time. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm um, really looking forward to this one because, you know, we talked a bit off camera because now, now we're basically starting uh, the episode. Seems to be that there's abundance of stories and uh, we're probably spoiled for choice and we need to find, find a way through the weeds.
1: I, I appreciate being here around shops like I do I and mean, we, we talk about off camera um, and this is one of the things I think is getting me some attention in the poker world right now is I was that 12 year old boy with a dream. Um, and so like to be here to write articles for card player, to do all this stuff is like really and truly a bucket list of mine. Like I could never have imagined when I was 12, that 18 years later, I'd be in this position. So like, I appreciate you having me on uh, mm. and having the opportunity to share my story and kind of. Uh, put myself out there. So really, yeah. then, thank you for for having me on. Oh, it's my
0: pleasure. Because uh, you know, I, I first spot, spotted you uh, some months ago, um, started watching some of your streams on Twitch, which are awesome, and I highly recommend people in your time zone at least go ahead and check it <laughs> out. Especially now, you're doing the official Galphon Challenge commentary as well, which is which is really worth the watch. There's quite quite a bit of excitement in that match at the moment and uh, we're definitely going to talk about that uh, at some point today but first let's focus on you and you've mentioned yourself that you basically as a kid already had a poker dream Uh, you got into poker you said where you were 12 years old
1: yeah yeah when i was a, a 12 year old kid um so I, I literally, my dad came over with his friends and they started playing around the kitchen table and you'd have about six or seven of them. And that was right before the money maker boom. I want to say us was 2001, if I'm not mistaken. And so they would get together for a few years and it'd just be sitting around drinking some beer um, and playing a variety of, I won't even say mixed games. It's just a chase the spade wild card games guts anything along those lines and so it wasn't poker for poker's sake per se it was just guys sitting around bullshitting Uh, and that sort of sense of camaraderie drew me into start and i would watch them probably once every week or once every a couple weeks when they would come over and then they start transitioning to no limit hold'em once everyone in the world did and it started taking on the form of you know, just having fun and being games for games' sake into a little bit more about the money, a little bit about the strategy, and somehow I convinced my dad to let me play uh, for the very first time when I was around twelve, somewhere between you know, eleven and twelve years old. And I remember it very distinctly because the very first time was over at my uncle's house. They moved the game over there, and he said, "I'll oh, I'll give you the first twenty dollars." Because everyone at the time, they didn't want to hurt each other. It wasn't about the money per se, but they each had two $20 buy-ins throughout the course of the night. And it was a cash game. Mm -hmm. So no one was even allowed to buy-in for more than that. So he gave me $20. And I I ran that down to zero. I convinced him, give me 20 more and I'll mow the yard. Mm -hmm. And I think I had two pair that got counterfeit on the river and lo and behold, I was mowing the yard the next day. And then I mowed the yard one more time and continued playing in the game and I never had to mow the yard again. Like I just started figuring it out and start winning money quite quickly and that kind of became my allowance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is actually quite, quite a funny any way
0: you got into it. And very interesting approach to the game as well, just limited amount of buy-ins allowed. I feel it's it's really a good structure for a friendly house game.
1: Yeah, it's it stuck with them. Uh they continued playing even throughout the course of the Moneymaker boom for the next 10 years. They never had anything major. Uh, I think we had tournaments that my dad would actually help host at one of the guys' houses. And it'd be at most a $50 tournament, but they grew from two tables, 18 or so people, all the way up to about 80 people. So there was, I mean, it's significant the amount of people that he'd you know, generate. I helped him run it as a kid. I was playing in them, I won a couple of them, but never excelled in the buy-in. And I remember we had a high roller tournament, I believe twice, and that generated two tables as a $200 buy-in. And that's the highest they ever win. It never went beyond a $20 or $40 cash game. It never went beyond, a, you know, for the most part, $50 tournament. So it's all just to learn the game, for the enjoyment of the game, for the passion, for the camaraderie, and not so much like the money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How was it to be a 12-year-old at the table there? I think it gives you some swagger. <laughs> I mean I don't remember being Intimidated there'd be some, some Comments once in a while like oh The, the kid's winning again this fucking kid Who, who brought the kid in here well, On the whole for, for some reason I don't Know why I legitimately have no idea why I was accepted And I don't know Why I don't know if I handled myself more Maturely I don't know if I Did something to earn their respect but for some reason I was I earned my seat at the table and they accepted me as just part of the, the crew that was playing, hmm. which is so weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, interesting. What, what do you think?
0: Because at that age, this is an unusual experience to be with adults when they're not trying to be adults around a small kid. Well, I mean, small kid, all right. 12, 12-year-old teenager, they're not trying to be all daddy polite. They're playing poker. So how was that actually that it must had must have had some formative um, sort of impact on on, uh, on you?
1: Yeah, I mean I know I, I had a lot of experiences probably earlier than some people or in a different capacity than some people just by that, because I remember probably around 17 or 18, a different game. Then I walk in and with my dad and the host looks at him and he says, Oh, you want a beer? And he says, yeah, I'll take a beer. And he looks at me and says, you want a beer? I just kind of look at my dad because I'm like, yeah, I'm obviously underage and he's like, just kind of shrugs, gives me this like, sure, why not? So I'm like, sure. You know? And obviously some kids are out there partying and some people are out there, you know, doing everything under sun from, 14, 15, but it's like, it gave you kind of a safe and controlled environment where because I was treated as an adult from a very early age, then I start acting as an adult from a very early age. I saw people not as an intimidation factor, uh, because they're older than me, but I actually, I think, saw them as more mentors. So even to this day, um, I have some very, very good friends of mine. I'm 31, while my very good friends, Chad Hara, is 51, I believe now. And, you yeah, know, he's a very good friend of mine, very close, but I also view him in the mentorship role. But it allows you to kind of transcend the barriers of, like, friends, adults, mentors, and kind of merge into one Um so I think that's that's what I really took away from it. That's what helped me uh, in those formative years to form who I am at this stage of the game.
0: Interesting. And how did it? What kind of impact did it have on your interactions with your peers? I know for a fact
1: that coming in, specifically in high school, I was kind of seen as cocky. And I was seen as a little bit of, I had an ego. Um, I don't think it was, I was just, I've always been confident. I think that's what it was, is I was confident, but in a way that rubbed people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And so it took growing up because you can, you can be an adult in your head at 14, but you still have a long way to go in a maturity aspect. So I, I think I was confident and I was cocky of myself in high school and beyond and it rubbed people the wrong way because I didn't have the maturity to back it up I didn't have the experience to back it up mm-hmm. so I I think in some respects I it it pushed me too far um outside of like a social norm and I had to develop into myself and I probably didn't develop into like someone that other people around my age were like light until i was early to mid-20s mm-hmm. Well,
0: let's say in those teenage years did, you, did your friends know that you're playing these games
1: some of them did some of them didn't um i know i think i, I was in i was in theater during high school and in theater i was playing online at that point i had a as smart enough to realize that you shouldn't just put something onto a high school computer without ramifications. So I literally took a thumb drive, uh, and I put ultimate bet and full tilt on there. And when we would go in for theater practice, I had just a very small bit role that took two minutes out of the three hour long practice. I would take the thumb drive, go into the back room, put it into a computer, download ultimate bet and full tilt. And while everyone else was studying and practicing, rehearsing, I would play poker for two hours or three hours. And then when everything was done, I would delete it off the computer and just repeat the process, rinse and repeat day after day. And so like, I mean, some people knew exactly what I was doing. Some of my friends were like, oh, you're a poker player. That's awesome. And Some had absolutely no idea.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Interesting, really interesting.
0: Yeah, I never talked to anyone before who who was playing poker seriously at that age. You know, because my opinion, poker as a game, it does um, well. I don't know if "develop" is the right word, but definitely highlight uh, specific traits of character, and definitely helps develop specific traits of character and perhaps a vision of of life, like you know cuz especially if you're in the game for a long time you're going to have a more realistic understanding of what does fair mean what does uh luck mean you know all all these aspects which to a non poker player you know sometimes when you when they talk to a seasoned poker player <laughs> if we if we use that term you know there there's quite a divide in um in how we see the world compared to like a regular person, because once again, you know, the different yeah. understanding of variance, different understanding of, uh, in a way, taking responsibility, right? Because I, I feel like in poker, everybody hits that point in their career where you sort of have to face the uncomfortable truth that maybe... It is your fault. Maybe it uh, it's nothing to do with just oh I'm unlucky. I'm the unluckiest. I've been so unlucky for two and a half years or whatever it is, right? <laughs> it's maybe your fault, and uh, face it and live with it, right? And and that's something that not many other professions force you to um, face. You know this the sort of self evaluation and being self critical and taking responsibility for um well for your life really so i wonder if if that at the early age already had some impact on you
1: i can guarantee you because as you said that like kind of brought for something in me because i remember the very first cognitive thought that 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 goes to is my brother was always dating girls in high school and it would be he'd be a serial monogamous and it'd be you know, one girl for a year that break up and instantly a week later, he'd have another girlfriend and it'd just be, you know, girl after girl after girl, but it'd be, you know, serious relationships for that point in time. And he also had some other issues going on. And I just looked at him and said, I don't want to be like that. I want to take responsibility for myself. And I would rather, and you know, I'm probably 15 or 16 at this time when you shouldn't be having these thoughts, you should be like, girls, let's, let's go chasing them. Let's go. Woo. Um, instead I was like, okay, I should take responsibility for myself before I can take responsibility for having someone else in my life. And that's something that stuck with me throughout high school and college and into later in life is until I work on myself to the point I'm happy with who I am, I didn't want to bring someone else into my life. Um, so I think it was that watching someone else basically running bad for two and a half years in poker except for in this case it was in relationships and blaming the world and blaming the girls and blaming anything but himself and saying i don't want to be that guy i don't want to blame luck i want to take responsibility for who i am so i know even into college i said you know everyone's going around and having their fun and having girlfriends i was like unless i have the money to support a relationship, unless I have these factors to support a relationship, I'm not even going to attempt to get into one because it, would, it wouldn't it be taking that responsibility, as you said, for who you are. I think that is something that started in poker and translated down the road without me even realizing it. Well there must be a lot of things, because like with all the experiences
0: uh, that define us. Uh, it seems natural to us. Like, how do we know that, well, this is not the common way. This is not how everybody else thinks, right? Especially when you're that age, uh, like what is the measuring stick sort of uh, that that you take there to compare, um, to make a comparison between yourself and, and others. So yeah, th- this is super interesting. And I, I think we're going to circle back to this a bit Again, But let's switch gears and go talk about um, the first bracelet, the WSLP, because there's going to be some things that probably going to tie up with what we just discussed.
1: So first bracelet um, was 2017 $1,500 Pot Limit Omaha 8 or Better Tournament. I just come out of Hawaii, my wife was stationed there from the military. And we can get into that one a little bit later down the road. And we were engaged in April. We got married on the beach, June 2nd, and basically immediately after I went off to a world series that year, I played about four or five events. I think I had one deepish, medium run of 106th place in a Potlin Omaha event. And then the Portland Omaha eight or better event uh, kind of popped up on the radar and beforehand I had been burned out. I would probably played two or three weeks at the world series and uh, actually Chad, I, I, I said, Hey man, uh, I'm burned out. I want to come back to Texas and visit y'all thinking coming in town this weekend. And he said, Oh, I'll be in Houston. I won't be around coming next weekend. And he was kind of the main reason I was going to go back. Like, you know, you can go and visit your parents and family, and, but you can only visit them for so long without going insane. So him saying, hey, come back next week. And I was like, all right, I'll play this tournament. Why not? As a PLO8 event. Uh, day one, I, I don't really remember day one too much, other than the fact that one of my friends said, hey, do you want to enter to last longer Uh, So I entered into a last longer with, I think it was a pool of 20 or 30 people. I only knew a couple, Kaylin McNeil, Leif Force, uh, Hamid, Hamid um, are the ones that stand out in my mind. And that's really the only thing of day one of any note that I remember. And day two, uh, I was down to around five big blinds. Uh, Yeah, I think it was about five big blinds and he's just saying okay like i've cashed i made the money i'll see what i can do with this and see if i can spin it up and it was a very weird circumstance that there's everyone limps around me on the button i have king king nine five i'm like all right let's see if we can make the hand here and i made like three nines on the flop and one guy wanted to get all in with a low draw or flush draw or something. And I went from five big blinds to 20 or 25 big blinds just because everyone had limped and it gave me life again and it said, Oh, like, okay, I have potential in this tournament and I made day two with our day three with a medium stack. And from that point forward, I hit a one outer when we had, I believe three tables left, um, we were, I was getting three quartered in the pot. And then I hit the one remain deuce on the river to scoop both sides of the pot. And from that point forward, I could do no wrong. I was just chip leader from three tables, I think, all the way through to when I wanted. And every decision I made, everything I did was absolutely spot on. I was able to read everyone perfectly. All the chips flowed in my direction. And you can look at it even now. And I think they were calling it... You yeah, us, uh, Nathan Gamble steamrolling volcano keeps rolling. The train is chugging along. It was just, I mean, you check the updates on it. It's just one after another of like, he cannot be stopped. This is the fastest tournament, but this is the most dominating tournament of the year. Um, and I do believe I played exceptionally well. I think bracelet number two backed up. I do know how to play the game, but I was very lucky as well. Everything did seem to roll in my favor and I went out to dinner with one of my friends. We went over to Aria. We went to Lemongrass and there was five people left. I believe came back from dinner break. He said, Hey, I'm playing in the, you know, in the cash games, I'm going to play over there. Like, and I'll, I'll come back in 30 minutes. I said, okay, cool, man. And I come back and it literally took me under an hour to win the tournament. To knock out the remaining players, it was just one after another after another after another, wow. and he never even had time to come back um, from the cash games. It was so fast. When we made heads up play, I think I had eight to nine chip lead over Adam Hendricks and Hedrix. I think it's Hedrix, but I had something like eight or ten to one chip lead. I looked at him. I said, "Okay, let's finish this in one hand." And one hand later it was done. We didn't, i there's no heads up. We played one hand. So, and, and from that it went so fast. It went so quickly. I'd ran so pure for you know, day three that I sat there when they passed me the bracelet, when they took the pictures, I was in shock. I was in disbelief. I was in awe. Like it finally happened. It was real. but didn't feel real because it was so fast. It's so sudden that I actually went and played 2040, uh, Omaha eight or better for about three or four hours afterwards, just to decompress, just to try and let it absorb, Mm -hmm. uh, and no one at the table knew like, they were just like, Oh kid playing 2040. like, I was just sitting there in shock and disbelief.
0: (laughs) Wow. Interesting. Yeah interesting you know you know why I asked about this WSOP event because I feel like you know we started about the 12 year old you and then this highlight which must have been the highlight for for that point I mean winning the the bracelet is especially the first bracelet in your case you know there's more than one it must be an unbelievable experience and I wonder how did How do you reflect back on the, you know, the teenage self when you were just playing these games? Did did it ever occur to you that, you know what, this one day I'm going to play the WSOP. I'm going to go for the bracelet. Was it ever
1: a dream? It's always been a dream. I know. Unequivocally, yes. Absolutely. Um, Because I, I I watched on the TV with my dad. I was a kid. I won't say I was part of the moneymaker boom per se because I started developing that passion beforehand. But we did watch WPT, we watched WSOP events, we watched um, high stakes poker. We watched all those TV shows together. But I also remember, I I can't tell you where this came from. I don't know if it's just a passion or obsession. I remember in, I, I was about 14 or 15 years old, we were in Colorado on a family vacation and everyone else is sleeping or in the room reading a book or something. And right next door was a computer lab across uh, wow. the, the hall from us. And I was in there on the computer because no one had laptops at the time hitting refresh on the WSOP main event. And it was the year Greg Raymer wanted. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there just, Refreshing and just reading updates on, oh, you know, this guy, Josh Aria, Greg Raymer, you know, raised here. And it's like, why was I a 15-year-old kid reading about the main event? Like, what was the passion? What was the obsession? I can't tell you, but it was there. It was very real. So to become a part of history, to become a World Series of Poker main event um, bracelet winner, yeah, was, I mean, it's something I dreamed about for a very long time my very first year at the world series poker was right after I graduated college. I went out there with my dad. And before we got there, we're standing around in our kitchen and he looks at me and he says, we should do a side bet. I was like, yeah, dad, let's do a side bet. What do you want? He's like, how about if one of us went, or if one of us makes the final table, then the other one has to jump off the stratosphere because, you know, they have the bungee jumping or they have three yeah. different rides. And I was like, sure, yeah, let's do it. I think I'd already been skydiving at the time. I'm I'm an adrenaline junkie. I'm like, let's do it, sure. And I know he had no chance at, you know, making a final table, so it's a free roll. And the very first event I played was a $1,500 PLO event. And I made, I I finished in 12th place. The very first one I ever played, 12th place. And he was on the sidelines, sweating it out, being like, I kind of want him to like make this and win a bracelet and win a bunch of money. And I kind of want him to bust out in like 10th place. So, I mean, I, and I think honestly, like from being that kid, from watching WSOP, WPT, high stakes poker to the very first event I played, I took 12th place that continued that passion, that fire even more. So when I did win it, it felt like it was, complete the circle Mm -hmm. from the kid to the adult who played his first event and almost made it to the guy i won the bracelet i did it like mission accomplished so Mm -hmm. yeah that that was a very special moment for me
0: and i reckon your father didn't want to make any more side bets after that (laughs) first event (laughs) we haven't made one yet no yeah can't blame him i mean that that should have been probably was a pretty conflicting experience for him because like you <laughs> said he probably wants you to bust the 10th but at the same time i mean the worst for him is if you bust ninth it's oh, yeah. neither neither that or that it's just basically shit now i have to jump off uh, the, the tallest building in vegas it
1: is the tallest one right uh, I, think so. I think so i think probably is, is yeah he wow, he told me yeah. later he was trying to figure out how to buy out of the bed <laughs> and make the table. But like, yeah, it's fair. I would figure something
0: out. Oh man. That's funny. All right. Um anyway, so let's circle back. So you've you've spent you know, your teens playing poker. I mean, not like full time poker or whatever, but it seems like, especially your story about how you were sneaking out in the theater practice for a two, three hour stretch uh, on uh, Ultimate Bet or wherever you were playing, that kind of means you were playing a lot.
1: So then you went to college? Yeah, I went to uh, college in Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, at a small little uh, it was a private school, but I was on mostly scholarship for that one. And it was half a business school, half a culinary school. It's called Johnson Wales University. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I went for international business. All
0: right. And yeah, um, I guess there was a lot of poker during that time as well, right? It's, it's college after all.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's... I definitely didn't concentrate on poker a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... Because it was your first experience into the world and it was, you know, parties and girls and, and, you know, some school mixed in there, but as well as uh, some snowboarding as well. And so um, I, I was definitely not doing so well with online poker. I think that's when online poker started changing a little bit and evolving. So it's more of a serious endeavor. And obviously, when you're out there chasing girls and drinking and snowboarding, it's, not your main focus and you I wasn't putting in the time and effort necessary but I was I, I always have been inherently smart uh, just book smart street smart whatever you want to call it to the point that I would take an accounting class I would show up with no computer no notes no paper and uh, they would do all these equations to figure out you know, end of year earnings or whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. And it was like a five-step process people to use on Excel. And everyone would do it. And then they would run their numbers by me, even though I have nothing in front of me. I just did all mentally. I remember one time someone says, oh, you messed up. The answer is this. And I looked at their equations that actually messed up in column two, four, and seven. And if you plug those in, you'll get my answer. And they went back and they fixed it. and they got my answer um so like i didn't have to pay attention in class and it got to a point where i had the highest grade in probability and statistics we were in the computer lab and while the teacher was teaching he'd walk up and down and he'd walk to the very back which is where i was and i'm sitting there again playing online poker i think on full tilt at this point and just like looks at me and he's like what are you doing and i was like probability and statistics and he just like, he knew I had the top grade in the class and I was teaching like three other people on the side without paying attention to him. And so he just kind of like shrugged his shoulders and was like, all right, cool, man. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that being said, like, I don't, I wasn't a winning player throughout college. I had a, a deep run for about 18,000 on a F top Sunday, whatever they were back then, 750,000 guarantee. I took seventh place for about 18,000. I think it was 17,500. Uh, and then it's like, it'd just be a flux of being broke or having money and being broke and having money back and forth Mm -hmm. to the point that senior year, I want to go somewhere for spring break and jumped on a probably three or $400 PLO tournament on ultimate bet. I think I won $6,000. Uh, I took first place. So I'm like, all right, I got money. I jump online. I'm like, where should I go? Like, you don't save money. You don't have a bankroll. You're a kid in college. Like, let's go. Let's have some fun. And I literally said, Let, where should I go? I looked up exchange rates for somewhere semi-cheap. I said, Costa Rica has good exchange rates. Cool. Let's go to Costa Rica. So I jump on to Expedia. And I said, you know, Denver, Colorado to uh, San Juan, Costa Rica, and it says, "Do you mean airport code SJU?" I say, "Sure, man. I'll I'll know the airport code, right? SJU. Sure, cool, guys. Let's go." And it was relatively cheap. It was a couple hundred dollars round trip. And I say, "Booked." And I, you know, I start doing all my research, and I say, "Here's my hotel in Costa Rica, booked. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going. I'm. We is me. I was just going by myself, but." I'm going to go on a zipline tour. Booked. We're going to go to Canopy over here. Booked. I just, you know, I planned everything out. Let's go. It's happening a week and a half. Um, and a week and a half later, I had to connecting flight through Houston. I fly down. I walk to the gate, and on my way to the gate you know, those carts are like shuffling people around that have like broken legs or they're older, or, you know, they, and it's like, they, they drive by me and they say, Oh, uh, next stop for San Juan, Puerto Rico. I, just oh, kind of, and I was like, I was like, nah, I didn't hear that. Right. Whatever. I pull up to the gate and it says SJU San Juan. And then they start coming over the loudspeaker and say, Everyone for Puerto Rico, we're boarding in five minutes. And I say, oh, fuck. Oh, man. Oh, no. And so I walk over and to the counter and I said, excuse me, ma'am, where's this flight going? <laughs> and she says, oh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I said, okay. And I walked over to like their help desk. I don't remember who it was, American Airlines or whatever. And I walk over there. I say, how much to book a ticket to Costa Rica? She said, well, the first one's leaving tomorrow morning and it's one way. And it was like $1,200. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to book a return flight. And I just was like, all right, I guess I'm going to Puerto Rico. And they're boarding right then. We didn't have laptops at that point. You know, you didn't have Wi-Fi. It wasn't quite that connected. Everything was still in development. And so I just said, screw it. I called my dad and I said, Hey, heads up. I'm going to Puerto Rico. Um, I may need some help here. And I just went down there. I stayed at a hotel by the airport for the first night while I tried to figure out where the hell in the world I was, what I was doing, where I was staying, what there was to do. And I just ended up staying out of this little hole in the wall hotel in the middle of Puerto Rico for like five or six nights, I just found like, and I I was trying to cancel everything in Costa Rica and they wouldn't give me a refund. So I had very minimal money to my name. Uh, And there was some casinos down there. I played a little bit of poker and that didn't go so well. So I had even less money. So I ended up like going to charity concerts for Hurricane Katrina being held in Puerto Rico. And I was just like just to be around people and just to go and do something. And everyone's yelling and shouting in Spanish and there's giant Spanish parties that don't speak Spanish. It was an experience, man. It was uh that was that was the college years for me. Like I had um, some odd times.
0: Can imagine the feeling of uh <laughs> Oh, shit, it's a different country, and <laughs> you have all the. I mean, nowadays, obviously, with your mobile phone, with the internet, like before getting on the plane, you can already get everything
1: canceled. No big deal, but back then, mm-hmm. yeah, no, like you don't have that opportunity um, back in early two thousands. I, I think I you had what a razor phone, no internet service. You could literally call someone off of it. Mm. You can't, I mean, nowadays you can even, if you're lost in the middle of a country, you can be like, all right, where am I? What is there to do? Where can I stay? Yeah. Now it was just like, talk to locals, talk to random people on the beach.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Different times. Not, not so far away I go either. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, I want to circle back to something you were, uh, something you said that, that specific moment in the probability or well, statistics class basically with your professor mm-hmm. um, when you reflect back on it now how do you feel about it like how do you how do you feel about basically sitting there in the back of a class playing poker
1: i would say it's slightly irresponsible um but at the same time as I, I told you, I think offline. I graduated college in three years, mm-hmm. and so I never felt challenged in college. There was never a class that I took that I felt challenged. I think that's a large reason of why I was able to just sit in the back and not pay attention and play poker. And I think that it kind of set me up for a little bit of the mindset that I wasn't going to go into a corporate job, no matter what happened with. Graduating or not graduating from college. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit of me just taking charge of my own life and saying, This is what I want to do. This is my passion. And I'm going to do it, and everything else be damned. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't recommend it to most people. I wouldn't recommend, um, even back then, I think people should have graduated college as opposed to pursuing um, poker as their end all be all. But that being said, if you have a passion, I believe wholeheartedly you should just follow it, especially when you're young and throw yourself into it um with everything you have
2: mm-hmm. because
1: if it fails, then you can find something else you can you can turn back into the system, but if it's successful, I think you're just gonna be happier in life overall
2: mm,
1: absolutely so responsible but Yeah,
0: yeah. what you're saying is is really important um, to underline, uh, in my opinion, this risk-reward relationship, especially in, in the early stages, like when you are in college, like what's the downside? Like you said, if you fail, well, you just, you know, you still go and get a job like everybody else, right? What's the big deal? If you succeed, and the definition of success, I think, has to be more specific probably to each individual because for some success in poker would mean, well, I, I won X amount of money. I won a bracelet. I won this. I won something. For other people, it I gained uh, a fuller life basically because I, I pursued something that really gives me joy on a daily basis. I, I, I like it. And it taught, taught me something about myself, right? Because I, I feel like, Poker as a career, and to be honest, many other careers as well. poker is not unique in that sense, but the experience of going through it molds you in in some some ways, and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, and um, you know very often it, it it leads you on a journey where some people don't come out on top right in in a sense of you know I've seen a lot of people. Uh, burnout while trying to per- pursue poker as as a career uh, i've seen a lot of people um, sort of deteriorate in a sense of you know just going more and more irresponsible in a sense right because because like for example the behavior of taking things for granted and just well you know i'm just gonna play it while i'm um in the college, and mind you, I think that is something that everybody did. everybody did it at some point. It doesn't have to be college, but everybody did it at some point, just switching off from whatever you're supposed to be doing and either thinking about poker or actually playing poker. you know we we all been there, especially in the early stages of our careers. and I think that's really bad, right because there's no point in playing in a sort of environment that is it's not a job you're just not really present for poker and you're not present to whatever you're supposed to be doing so you're not neither there nor there so what are you doing right and that's that's a slippery slope because you know, obviously with other careers you can't be do, well with many careers you can be doing like traders are doing the same thing you know i've i've uh, in university some of my friends who were traders well they're the same thing with a laptop they're just you know probabilities and, and statistics or whatever the their excuse is. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, so after college you went to military. I wonder why. Did you always want to go into military? What what was the so what was the reason for you to
1: go into the army? I think I still question that personally. Uh, I know some underlying factors. I know Growing up, I was in the Boy Scouts of America, I was an Eagle Scout, like I did have kind of that sense of passion for the country and for a pursuit of a greater purpose, if you will. My grandfather served in World War II. Uh, I remember one time I went aboard the USS Lexington as part of a scout trip, and they did a flag retirement ceremony on top of it, and it was very moving experience but i didn't overwhelmingly have this like oh i need to go into the military for that um and then part of it was partly practical if you will because once i graduated college uh, i went to world series of poker i had that 12th place finish i was talking about i made sixteen thousand five hundred and eleven dollars which somehow i still remember the exact figure to this day (laughs) uh and that was the only money i had coming out of college and then I played poker for about a year and a half, two years. And it went well enough to support me in a very base level lifestyle, but nothing beyond that. And money was starting to run dry. And I didn't know what to do with a degree at that stage. So part of it was very practical of let me try a career. I think I'd be good at, I have a little bit of patrioticness in me and I need some money. Like you tie it all together and you say, I'm a smart guy, I have a degree, I can go be an officer, I can have a little bit of a cushier lifestyle in the army than most of the people. I wasn't joining because I had nothing else, but in some in some respects, I think it's just because it was a little bit on the the easy way out mm-hmm. um, when you combine it with the other factors. And it sounds kind of funny when you say military is an easy way out in some respects, because I went through, Oh God. um, I went through basic training April 15th until uh, middle of July. And then from July till September 19th, I did basic officer leadership course. And both of those were held at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is about the most hellacious place on earth you can be stuck during summertime. It's reaches about 95 to 100 degrees, but the humidity just hits you like a brick. You're sweating day in, day out. When you're trapped in the barracks and basic training, you're surrounded by Uh, I believe there's about 3,600 individuals within your barracks alone, or maybe it's 56. I think it's in the fifties and you never have a moment by yourself. You literally, you, you breathe together, you eat together, you drink together, you sleep together, you, you brush your teeth, you wash your clothes, you piss together, you shower together. It doesn't matter. Everything is together. So come from coming from a very individualistic lifestyle within, uh, within poker where it's all about yourself. It's all about your own survival to go into the military lifestyle, specifically basic training where you're surrounded by 50 some odd other people day in and day out Mm -hmm. is a very large change of pace for me. Um, And I definitely do wonder sometimes like what was it that drove me to decide to try that, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it does delve into what you talked about a couple of minutes ago of risk versus reward what am I risking versus what's the upside? I'm not really risking a lot. I mean, yes, I could go off to war. I can get killed. Okay, that's like a minute possibility. But to me, is more, let me try something. Try anything. I'll try anything. I'll go skydiving. I'll go bungee jumping. I'll join the military. Whatever it is, let me try it. And if it doesn't pan out, if it's not successful, if I don't enjoy it, It's a limited time investment. The reward, the potential upside, though, is exponential. If you enjoy something, you can have that for the rest of your life. If I enjoy it, I take it with me. It changes me. It shapes me. It's formative. And it can definitely put my life in a different direction. So I think it is just being open to new experiences, to change, and not being afraid to try something tomorrow. How absolutely ridiculous it sounds is what led me to actually say, not only am I willing to try it, but going ahead and just signing my name to it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What do you think were the biggest, what, what was the biggest impact on your life from the military career?
1: I remember... I I had experiences and changes throughout the entire course of the career. One of the ones that sticks out to me at the very onset, we were in Dallas, Fort Worth at the airport, shipping to Fort Benning. They put me in charge of six other guys because I was the one that's supposed to be an officer and supposed to be more level-headed in charge. We're at the airport April 15th, two thousand. 15, if I remember correct, or sorry, 13, April 15th, 2013. If you look that day up in time, that happens to be the day of the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. We're at the airport and every TV in there is talking about how this terrorist event just happened. People's legs were blown off. There's explosions going on all over the city of Boston. No one knows what's going on. No one knows how many casualties there were. How many people are dead? How many people are wounded? There's no information. And that's why I boarded the airplane going into the military. And you step off the airplane three or four hours later. And now there's, at that point, and it, it wasn't true, but they believed hundreds were dead. Mm-hmm. And that's what was being reported on the TV screens at that point. And so in your head, you're saying, what just happened? Is this another 9 11 type of event? And this is what you're going into the military. This is your day one of joining and you're saying, what what's happening? Where am I going? How is this going to change me? And so that was a very abrupt change for me going into it that sticks with me to this day. And I think really what I took away is just how seemingly random life can be and how much it can affect you without you ever realizing it. How Mm. everything that happens can change in a blink of an eye. And I think we've realized that in 2020 as well. Like everything you took for granted, you know, the, the drink of water, the talking to people, the going out in public, it can change just like that. Snap of a finger, blink of an eye. And so how you have to take control of your own life, how you have to be the master of your own destiny, because... While the world will change around you, while events will shape you, it's how you react to it and how you decide to interact with it that's going to change your future. So, for me, it wasn't necessarily the military within that respect. It was kind of the culmination of events Mm -hmm. that led me to understanding that I have to be responsible for who I am and I won't accept something happening to me that's outside my control if it's at all possible Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and i wonder also i obviously never had an experience like that so i'm really curious to hear what was going on through your head because i imagine being in the military on a day when an event like that happens like the boston bombing You probably must feel on some level that, well, this is me now, you know, that's not like, okay, we we guys are going to war. And obviously that wasn't the case, but let's imagine because at that point on that day, you, you, you don't know, you might be going to war. Right. But Everybody else is thinking like, oh, we are going to war, which means like, okay, our country, our countryman, uh, whatever, some abstract form. Maybe you have somebody in the family who's, who's going somewhere. But, you know, for majority, it's just news. It's just, you know, something on Twitter to read about, you know. Being in the army. That's on you, basically. It's not somebody's going to war. you going to war. Maybe you're not, but at that moment so what's going on through your head at, the, at that stage like do you feel that responsibility sort of falling on you do you feel the pressure do you feel uh, probably a bit anxious about the whole thing i don't know tell me
1: yeah i, I remember specifically i said there's about 6 of us and you just kind of all look at each other and that's step 1 is everyone just kind of like gives each other this look of like oh shit this is real. Like life just became real. And as you said, you, you're no longer in a situation where it's someone else doing something. It's someone else going to war It's someone else taking action. It can directly be upon you, upon your life. And it's, you're that person. You're the reality. And you're anxious. You're scared. You're uncertain. And I I know when we got to basic training, then there's basic training basically is supposed to take you from a civilian mindset and transform you into a military mindset. And part of how they do that is they take all of the outside world and they push that away where you don't have access to it. You don't have access to phones, the internet, to, to friends or family. And that, Particular training was very different because they did say we understand that everyone here has, you know, loved ones and people affected by what just happened, and so that was the one piece of outside information that they would continually give.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: would say, "Hey, guys!" Like and it kind of broke a little bit of a barrier, uh, almost like in the movies where there's that third wall. They kind of broke that third wall behind. The military world and the outside world for training purposes and said hey guys there's you know confirmed 22 people dead uh from this there's this many people injured this is what they're uncovering this is who did it this is what is happening and so there's going to be daily little five-minute snippets mm-hmm. and anyone that actually had direct correlation you know friends in the area um, in boston or just within the northeast or potentially had friends out there was allowed to call friends and family Mm. and was allowed that access to put their minds at ease because it is such a, um, unexpected startling and striking reality that kind of hit upon us. So it it's, um, yeah, it's, I think the same feeling that hit a lot of people on nine 11, whether they were, You know, directly in it or not, whether they're firemen or whether they were police officers or military, Uh, it's that same feeling of what just happened, what's going to change, how are we going to react, is there more to come? And it's that same thing when you're directly involved of that scaredness, that uncertainty, that anxiety, with knowing you have shouldered the responsibility to be one of the people that will respond.
2: Mm
1: and I I had that later down the road as well in Korea. Um, yeah, where we yeah I was just
0: about to ask you, because obviously the event in Boston, that was in the early stages of your career. The event right. in, in Korea, that was already in the later stages of your career when when you probably felt the whole situation differently because you've already been in the... Because the total amount you spent in service was uh, four
1: years, right? Uh, just under three and a half to four, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so at this stage, it was literally day one of shipping off but Boston happened. Uh and so I was just a recruit. I wasn't anyone special. I I was just a grunt that was going through training to learn how to, you know, hold a rifle and crawl through the mud and you know, shave your head and lick some boots, right? Um I I had no responsibility. So even if we did go off to war it probably would have been upwards of a year to year and a half before it would have personally impacted me from because I would have been in training fast forward, uh, approximately three years. It would have been, um, I want to say around July or August of 2015, if I'm not mistaken, then North Korea came across the border into South Korea in the middle of the night. they planted landmines uh, on the South Korean patrol lines. Uh, it's still not known exactly how, but North Korea does have tunnels under the border that we're constantly trying to close and shut down. So they sneak across they plant landmines on the South Korean side, I believe there's two or three South Korean soldiers who were patrolling the DMV. Um, uh, and they stepped on a landmine and all of them survived, but there are several legs that were blown off. Uh, so limbs went flying They, you know, they obviously had tried to kill them It's just North Korea being North Korean continually trying to do provocation. Uh, South Korea responded, uh, with giant speakers that they had previously taken down and they have These giant speakers are set up blasting propaganda into North Korea, talking about the evil of the regime and how, you know, basically trying to dissuade North Koreans to defect. So that was their first step of trying to retaliate against this as they figured out if there's more they should do. In turn, North Korea fired, I believe it was three rockets uh, at the speakers trying to shoot them down. South Korea has standing policy because of an incident that happened several years earlier where North Korea had fired Pong, one of their islands, Waipio Island, um, that for every rocket that North Korea fired at South Korea entity, and in this case, the speakers, um, they responded with, I believe, I could be wrong on the number, but was something like 27 in kind. So North Korea had sent over three rockets. South Korea sent back three for every one. So 81 uh, rockets at North Korea. I don't remember specifically if they're targeting military targets, if they were targeting. Um, I, I don't remember what they were targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, and then North Korea put their military on full, uh, full alert They started sending up propaganda um, and saying that we will melt South Korea to the ground. We will burn it. We will be the world's greatest volcano erupt upon South Korea. And we're going to kill every last person over there. And this was while we were stationed in South Korea. So great times. Um, And all this came about to me personally. My firsthand knowledge of this was I had wrapped up work for the day walked down the hill, walked into my barracks, called my girlfriend at the time. Now my wife and said, Hey babe, how's it going? And She said, well, uh, how are things up there? I was like, Oh, they're good. It's Friday. Looking forward to see you this weekend. Life's good. What about you? She's like, you may want to check the news and like call, call your command." So between the time I walked home to call her, all this had happened. So we're talking a 20 minute walk. And she was stationed down South with the military intelligence unit and had more firsthand knowledge than I did. Uh, she couldn't tell me anything over the phone as you know, still clearance levels and all that. So I just, I think I called my boss and said, Hey, sir, um, do I need to come back up there? He's like, yeah, yeah. I hadn't got a chance to call you yet. Get back up here now. I'm like, cool, man. And so we had, um, yeah, I, I know everyone was up for 24 to 48 hours at that point. Well, because we're on standby, we don't know what's going to happen. I was in charge of a MLRS battalion, which is a multiple launch rocket system, or not battalion, but a unit, which um, I believe has, it's been a while, three different vehicles, and they have eight different rockets at a time. So I'm in charge of about three different rockets that can be fired at once. And each of those rockets can wipe out a grid square, which is a uh, kilometer by a kilometer, if I remember correctly. So like it's a very significant piece of equipment in the US military to help South Korea at this time. And so we're all up for 24, 48 hours, um, just waiting on orders, waiting to see if we're jumping in and heading up North, what we're doing we went to the armory we withdrew our weapons um, because we didn't know we didn't know if we were going to be ordered to go to war and we were in stand up uh, lockdown and at one point you know we did roll out our uh, some of the the rocket systems and you know they're positioned around the base and positioned off base and they're so you'll be walking to work that day and there's just three launchers positioned you know, in the middle of a courtyard, basically Mm -hmm. pointed towards North Korea. And it became a very real part of life. Mm. Um, And kind of a funny thing that happened that not many people know about that wasn't reported stateside during this time was there was a sister battalion. It also had MLRS systems and they were supposed to go through training. Uh, this is, I think off Thursday or Friday, they're supposed to be going on training, uh, the next week around Wednesday and they, without asking permission, without seeing if it was a good idea, without running it up the chain of command said, okay, we're still going. And they took their entire battalion, which is, uh, I think they rolled about 600 people. Mm -hmm. You know, so a hundred vehicles, you know, Humvees and launchers, and they just start rolling up north to where the training site was. Didn't think maybe we should ask before, you know, since we're on the brink of war. So they start rolling up north, you know, 600 people, they get lost. They're heading towards the peace talks, which are happening on the DMV DMZ. Uh, in the blue houses that you'll see on TV and stuff, they're starting mm. to head that way. They get to the, I think it's called the bridge of no return. If I remember correctly, it's up towards the very you know borderline between the North and the South. And it's this giant bridge or maybe it's the freedom bridge. It's been a while. And they're rolling across this heading towards the peace talks. And one of the launchers breaks down on the bridge, midpoint, there's news reporters everywhere because they've been up there covering the peace talks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And not only does it decide to break down, it decides to burst into flames. Oh. So you just have this launcher that's slowly coming to a halt, but it's still just rolling forward on fire. As, and there's, there's systems built in. There's a, they're called Halon extinguishers. They're like giant fire extinguishers. And they're trying to put them out with that. And it's supposed to, you know, wipe everything out and they're malfunctioning. So you just have this launcher system rolling forward on fire and they had to wait, you know, bail everyone out, get out of there, no one was hurt, but they had to wait for the South Korean fire department to roll up with three fire trucks and just physically put out the launcher. And the news reporters are everywhere and no one knows what's going on. And like that pushed us almost one step further to war because North Korea just sees, you know, hundreds of vehicles rolling towards these peace talks. They don't know what's going on. And uh, so that was kind of a shit show. But eventually they were essentially able to negotiate everything down, and you know, whatever they agreed to, I'm sure there was, some people were released, and, you know, negotiations made. And, but that was a very different experience than, uh, Boston because I went from having no responsibility to being in charge of, you know, a, a platoon of 20 guys and have responsibility over, you know, 27 different or 24 different rockets that could literally just wipe out thousands of people. Um, and you do get a different sense of responsibility. And you do say, okay, like this, this is real. This is very real. I could go to war. I could die. But not only can I die, I have the responsibility of my men and I have the responsibility of what happens with this weaponry that I've been trusted with. Um, so pro- it was probably like, also
0: like a huge difference is when you're, you know, it, The Boston thing, when that happened, obviously you have no responsibility, but you also have somewhat limited training up to that point. And you don't know. You're just basically like wherever the wind is going to blow, that's where you're going. So there's this uncertainty as well. Whereas in, in Korea, you already have... You're probably already working through the steps. Okay, next thing I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do that, etc. So you're more focused on the task at hand, whereas you know in in the Boston thing, there's the uncertainty can make everything even more well scary in a way.
1: Yeah, Uh, you definitely had. I I had more of a sense of control in Korea because, as you said, like you've been through you know training. I've went over. I think a year, year and a half worth of training, something like that. And you go through all this training, so you do have a little bit more certainty and just a cool and calm sense of, okay, like this is the steps. If this is what happens, this is the chain of command. This is how it works. Um, And thankfully, the nice part of it is none of it had to come to fruition. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. Probably nice, good for all of us, (laughs) because that would have been a mess. Um, it's really interesting this combination of the two um, parts of your life. You know, poker being, um, although even with poker, you know, the the way you started being this this kid in the grown up game, now that already set a mark on on who you are and who you became, and then this complete. I don't know what's the right word. I don't know even what what word am I looking for. But like, well, in a sense, lack of responsibility, lack of um, commitment that was evident. You know, for example, you're playing in a classroom and then going to something really structured and where you have to be disciplined. You're working, you're, you're a cog in this big machine, which is the army. It's a really interesting complete experience. I I, th- I find it really fascinating. And even in the army, you had well, obviously the life-defining moments where where you had to probably reflect on life and what what is important. At least for those two big moments, uh, the the Korea one and and Boston one. But also even that incident which you described, you know, the shit show with the um, all that military might of six hundred people rolling in the wrong direction. It also kind of illustrates just how much incompetence there is in any walk of life, in any profession. And it doesn't matter how much you believe in the system or the company. Very often, eventually, it's the individual who still can, uh, you know, individual mistakes by individuals can still cause a lot of, um, of problems. So that's kind of interesting as well.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I think coming from the poker background into the military, I know I personally still struggled with some of that uh, regiment and structure to the point that I'll do something nowadays and my wife looks at me and she says, how are you ever in the military? Like, it doesn't even make sense because I'm just, I've always been more of a free thinker and struggled with having someone have control over me. So how I ever thought, that it'd be a good idea to join the military is I don't I don't know how that truly came about
0: <laughs> but. that's it's awesome though i i think it's an experience that um probably is really useful especially with the combination and, and it's not like i'm suggesting all oh, poker players now join the military but you know for for those of for those uh, who were Um, there's probably some takeaways, which really, which are really helpful. Although as with anything, any profession, you either learn something from it or you don't, and it's probably up to you, not up to the profession. So, you know, it's, it's not like one thing is, is better than the other. It's, it's all up to your personal um, sort of experience and how, how you, how you go through it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely true. Anything you do in life is going to have an impact on you and going to have an effect on you as how you internalize it and turn something from it as to who you are as a person and what you can take from that.
2: Mm.
0: I was just laughing because my, my son uh, decided to peek in the office and <laughs> make a face. <laughs> uh, anyway. And obviously you've been still playing um, during the army and you had the WSOP events and everything while, while being in the army. Um, uh, was pretty, pretty sick.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that kind of goes into what we were just talking about of having a little bit of conflict between that structured, rigid world of the army and still trying to be my own person uh, in Korea. I was I was stationed up north at Camp Casey, um, and my girlfriend at the time was stationed down at Camp Humphreys, which is a three-hour difference. And so we'd have to take a train to just meet up with each other. And sometimes, you know, okay, we're going to meet up, and it'd be a Friday. I would take a train first to uh, the Dragon Hotel or I don't, remember, um, I don't remember the name of it, but there's a casino down there. And I would just go and play poker for three or four hours and then continue on. And Mm -hmm. so I was just still playing at that time. And then I got out of the military in 2016, but before that, the, the summer of 16, I played in the main event for the very first time. I took 176, 172nd, something like that. And, um, yeah. Everyone's like, Oh my God, it's awesome. It's the best thing ever. You made like 48,000. This is amazing. And the reality of life was I'd been out at the this, this series for two or three weeks for seeing that I played like 10 events. I mm-hmm. think I was in the hole for 35,000. I would sold the majority of my action or not the majority, um, but about, I think I had 60% of myself mm-hmm. in the main.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I went into the main event I think I was down 30, 35,000 I still remember the very old day I entered it because, and this, I'm still in the military at this time, you know, this is still very, very, very meaningful money. This is not, you know, fucking around money. Um, but sold sold these pieces. So I told people like, yes, I'm, I'm playing this event. It's happening. Like I got you. It was the very last day to enter the main. I was staying, I believe, at the Luxor at that stage of the game because I'd moved around hotel to hotel based off what was cheap or free. I didn't even have $10,000 on me in Vegas. I didn't have $10,000 in my bank account. Um, I had $10,000 like, on a side account or twenty, whatever. I had enough money, but I had to transfer it to Bank of America so I could use their ATMs because the other one was a military one where you don't have access to ATMs. Mm-hmm. So I wake up in the morning and I'm like, all right, like hopefully I can withdraw enough money to go and play in the main event. And I look and the money hadn't hit my account. So I didn't even have enough money to play in the main event. And so I call my dad. I'm like, Hey, like I can transfer you money from this account. Can you transfer me like $4,000 or whatever I need it to like finish it out? And he was like, yeah, I can do it. So we were hoping that I could get the transfer from him in enough time be able to uh, withdraw to play the main. So I end up like walking down the street to go to a bank, but it wasn't even a bank. It was an ATM. So then I had to catch a taxi. So I walked like three or four miles in the morning, end up taking a taxi to a bank anyway. The money finally was able to transfer. I withdraw my 10000 rush over to Rio. I think late register three or four hours when I only have probably an hour left to late reg, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I end up making, I think it was day six. So everyone's just so excited and they're like, Oh my God. And I'm like, it was a break even summer. That was probably the most painful summer of my life. And I haven't played the main event since it's probably a little bit based off of like that experience. Um but that I mean, that was still while I was in the military, yeah, you know, and everyone was ecstatic and then the other big score I had while I was still in the military was uh like August of two thousand and sixteen, I want to say maybe a september um, at Windstar over in Oklahoma. I was telling you a little bit about this before we started the podcast up it it's uh it was like two or three day ones, and I play on. Uh, I played on Thursday. I take taken t- time off from military. I think I had like a four day weekend. I play on Thursday and you play till you make the money. So you play till last 10 or 15%. Mm-hmm. And so I play till about three 34 o'clock in the morning, finish up. We make the money. Awesome. I have a pretty large stack. I drove down to Dallas grab breakfast with my parents and jumped on a flight to Wyoming because I have a buddy that was getting married in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And so I'm barely on any sleep. I have a two hour flight. You know, you get an hour and a half of sleep, go to his wedding. I don't know anyone else there. Um, check into this hotel in the middle of nowhere. I'd rented a car. And proceed to meet just enough people to get absolutely hammered drunk. You know, it's a good time. It's a wedding. There's four or five guys that you all bond together. Everyone's single. You're just bullshitting, having a good time. And like, I mean, I drank probably like four or five bottles of wine to to myself. Mm -hmm. To the point that they're like, you shouldn't drive back. We'll drive you back. And yeah, you're like, okay, sure, man. So I wake up maybe we'll say maybe allegedly I'd thrown up in the middle of the hotel room and then tried to clean it up and throw the, you know, rags in the bathtub. But that's just allegedly, we don't know about that. So I'm just completely you know, off my rocker. It's, I think I went to bed at three in the morning. I have to be up at the flights at 10 is what's in my head. I wake up at like seven o'clock frantically like, okay, I need to, I need to like get my stuff and I pack my bags. I go downstairs and I said, hey, I need a taxi or an Uber. And I say, oh, honey, we don't have those out here. Middle of nowhere, Wyoming. Like, they don't even have taxis. I'm like, and like, I don't have anyone's number. I came in, like, the only person's number I have is the groom. I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I, I have a tournament to get back to, right? Mm-hmm. And so they literally get the maintenance worker to drive me like 40 minutes to where the, the, the wedding was held to get my car. And, you know, we're talking back and forth the whole time. He's a really nice guy. You know, I'm trying not to throw up in his car, get to where the wedding was held, get the car, Haul ass and I have like just enough time to like get to the airport and like turn the car in and catch my flight. And I haul ass back there. And lo and behold, I'm an idiot. And the flight wasn't at 1008. It was flight number 1008. <laughs> okay. And I had like five hours before my flight. Oh man. And I get there and I'm like, and the airport was locked. And like there's no because it's such a small airport, like there's only you know, three flights a day, sort of thing. And the airport's locked. I was frantically like trying to get in there and just freaking out. And uh, you know, and then I find out that my flight's not for five hours and I'm okay. And so I just, I don't know, got a cup of coffee and went off in the corner and tried to sleep. And, and, and then I came back, um, you know, jumped off flight, eventually came back to Dallas, drove up to Oklahoma and, you know, somehow managed to convert all that into a 12th place finish. Um, which is still probably one of the worst ones of my life because I was second in chips behind Gordon Veo. Uh, with like 12 or 13 people left, managed to bust in 12th place. And this particular tournament was really sickly run first was guaranteed as a million, but they didn't have the prize pool to support it. So it was like first is a million seconds, like 350,000.
2: Mm-hmm. So they
1: obviously are cutting a deal at some point. And so if I made it to sixth place, I think that's where they cut a deal mm-hmm. then like sixth place got like 200,000 minimum. And then first place was like 600 and something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I bust in twelfth. I last six more people, I go from 25,000 to basically a quarter million guarantee. Right. And so like, I mean, to come off the heels of this, just ridiculous trip into Wyoming in the middle of nowhere, uh, it's still good, like don't get me wrong. I'm I was still you know, happy four or five days later when you, know, you look at the money and say, okay, it's nice. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the last things I did in the military of like that fight for control between like who I was as an individual and like who they were of like military lifestyle, and trying and to regain a little bit of control of myself within the poker world.
2: Mm. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, and you're not having too much luck with your flights. Uh, the Puerto Rico <laughs> one, <laughs> now that flight 1008 uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, um, listen, the kidnapping story, which we haven't <laughs> touched upon. Let's jump into that because I feel like after the wedding story and all the catastrophe of the flights and
1: stuff, I want to hear that story now. Oh, the kidnapping story. Yeah, so this is the one that probably has the most eyes on it after the the bracelet win. This one came to light a little bit. Uh, it was January, I say it's January 11th of 2008. I was a senior in high school. And, you know, as we've already established, like I wasn't necessarily the, the coolest guy. I still had some braces. I had long, shaggy hair. And on this day, I was supposed to get my braces off. So I set up um a haircut afterwards. So I was going to come back to school a new man, with, you know, no braces, I got a new haircut, I got some swagger with the ladies. Um and so I go, I get braces off, I went to the mall to get a haircut. And once I finish up with that, you of got the swagger, got the convents rolling. You're, I walk out to the parking lot and I hear this guy. And he says, "Hey man, I'm expecting you, know, someone I know." Mm-hmm. You know some, some friends, some parent of a friend, whatever. And I'm, I turn around and it's this guy in his mid twenties, cargo shorts, black shirt, baseball cap, no idea who he is. Right. And I'm like, uh, Hey, what's up, bro. And he's like, Hey, he starts giving me a story about how his car broke down. And, um, he, he wants a ride to a gas station. He's waiting on a friend, but, you know, he he wants to grab something. Yeah, I'm not sure. It doesn't make sense now. It didn't quite make sense then. So I was mm-hmm. like, no, like I gotta get back to school. Sorry, I can't do it, man. And but like we're walking deeper and deeper into the parking lot. Right. And he keeps like talking, he keeps like asking. He's kind of personable. And you know, I'm having this great day. It's the first you know time I've had no braces in four and a half a year. I got a fresh you know haircut. Like, you know, you got your favorite shirt on. You're like, you know what, like life's been good to me. This is a good day. Let me return the favor. So I say, sure, man, where, where do you want to go? And he's like, Oh, it's just around the corner. I'll, I'll direct you. I'm like, all right, cool, man. So we get in the car, you know, close the door, um, turn the car on. He pulls a gun and you're just like, Oh, well this escalated quickly. And literally like time kind of just stops. You just, you, you, you pause. You don't know what's going on. You take that moment of like, oh, all right then. And he just says, now we're going to the bank. And and so as a poker player, even at that point, you know, I think I'm 18 at this time. And you already start running through the game tree. Do you open the door and run away? Do you take the keys out? Do you throw them? You know? Do you do what he wants. You you have all these options that are available, but you have to figure out how you use them. And so at that point I say, okay, let's for now, it appears he just wants money. Let's see if we get him money. If that's, that's it. You know? So we've made decision one, which is head to the bank, which is about three minute drive away. And as we're coming around the corner of the bank, then he starts receding into the back of the seat and he's just pressing himself further and further and further back to avoid the cameras. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we're going to drive through ATM. And so you just say, okay, like he's probably done something like this before he knows where the cameras are. He's thinking about it. He's not just like, let me rob this. So it's like Mm -hmm. it immediately became a little bit more clear. Like he knows what he's doing which is in some ways is comforting because he probably doesn't just, you know, rob people and then kill people all the time. He probably just robs people. So that's a little bit of comfort, but like, so, um, we get to ATM, I've been playing online poker and there's two, you know, a checking account, a saving account. And I know I, uh, another decision I made was just like, okay, like go with the account with a few hundred dollars versus a few thousand dollars. And it's just like trying to regain some control of the situation. Mm-hmm. As opposed to letting this guy have all the control, so you know, I punch in my 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 pin code and withdraw a couple hundred dollars and um, pass that over to him. and We roll out, and he looks at me and says, "All right, now we're going to my foot." I think is how I phrased it. It's been a while, but uh, mm-hmm. and let's get on the highway. And yeah, at this point, like you don't really have a lot of options available, so. We jump on the highway, um, heading towards downtown Dallas, which there's definitely some shady areas out there to say the least. And, you know, he starts talking about how I'm lucky. And if this was him back in the old days, he would have already shot me and dumped the body and how I'm really fortunate. And yeah, I'm just kind of like, Oh yeah, I'm so lucky to be in this situation. I'm like, cool, man. Um, and, yeah, I guess I'd probably, you know, caught a smirk on my face or look at disbelief because he started like pulling up his shirt and like showing me like bullet hole or like bullet wounds, you mm-hmm. know, that healed over the year. I remember like he twists over at one point, pulls up his shirt and there's one on the back of, back of his shirt, uh, back of his, his back. Um, that's still like, you can see the bullet still like bulging under there. Like it, he'd been shot at some point and like never mm-hmm. actually had removed. It was just probably yeah. like, you know, pour the alcohol over and stitch it up, sort of thing. And uh, so, you know, you know, he's serious. You know, like this guy's seen some shit. He's not. He's not messing around. So at this point, I start. You know, we're driving on the highway, and I start thinking through, like, okay, like options again. Do I drive off, you know, the side of the highway? Like, drive off a bridge? Do I ram into a car? Do I ram into a median? If I see a cop car, do I like, you know, slam on the brakes? And you know, what do I do? And the sad reality is. When we got in the car, I was in kind of that state of shock with everything that happened. I hadn't like put a seatbelt on, so mm. and he didn't have one on either, but like I don't feel that I can put a seatbelt on at this point without yeah, him without, uh,
0: of course, yeah,
1: so like I can't really hit anything. I can't hit a car, I can't hit a barrier, I can't hit a medium, I can't and you know. um so. I kind of had a limited options. So we'd go to downtown Dallas and I remember he looks at me as we start going into these neighborhoods, I have a blue polo on and he says, you're lucky you're wearing blue kid. Otherwise you'd probably already be shot. And you start looking around and like everyone that's outside is all wearing blue mm-hmm. and you realize you're in a gang neighborhood of some sort. Okay. And it also became readily apparent. I was the only white person in this entire neighborhood. And they're all, eyeing. you know, you ever seen training day? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, kind of that wonderful. same feeling. Like who, who's the fucking white guy? And you're just like, Hey guys, like, yeah. don't want me here either. Um, and so what would happen would we drive to a house? He direct me to a house. We'd go there and he would take my keys. He would take my phone and he would take my wallet and he'd leave me in the car. But as I said, you're the only white guy in the neighborhood. You stand out like a sore thumb. Everyone knows this guy. Apparently, like you can't just kind of like get up and run. You you can, but I feel like it'd be a very bad idea. So he would go inside the house and like, I'm just sitting there and trying to figure out if it's worth it. He Come back outside five minutes later and we repeated this process three or four times. And the very last time we get to this cul-de-sac and we're driving in at the end is there's this wood line it's all trees and behind it is train tracks and we're driving towards it and i'm like in my head i'm like well this is a good place to dump a body mm. all right this isn't good like this one's different than the rest of the houses the rest of the houses you just drive up alongside it okay but i was like this one just felt different and then he's like oh you know turn around on the cul-de-sac. So we like turn around and we drive up to one of the houses. So I'm like, all right, like, well, it's a a shitty area to be in probably where you want to dump a body. This is, you know, just another house. Um, and he goes inside and he comes back about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes later. And there's these two big old guys behind him. Forehand, no one's walked out of the house, two big old guys. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh shit. Like this one's different. You know, and I said, okay, like I just created this boundary in my head. Like if they cross this part of the sidewalk, I got run. Like I gotta go like, because mm-hmm. something, something's happened. And so they, they start walking and they literally stop right before this imaginary boundary I had in my head mm-hmm. and everyone, you know, kind of does the handshakes and adapts and says, yeah, I'll see you later, man. And I'm like, okay. Like, I don't know what's happening again, but looks like we're safe ish. Mm-hmm. And he comes back and he gets in the car. And he's like, all right, we're going to leave now. So we start driving out of the neighborhood and then in the middle of the road, he's like, stop the car. And again, you're just like, okay, something new happening. And that's the thing. Like every time it's like a new piece of info, a new, something's happening. And, uh, you just figure it out and you are trying to react to it. And he, uh, he takes the keys. He gets out and he goes in a, behind us. And these two guys have been following us in a car. And he goes back to them. And again, like I'm watching the rearview mirror. I'm watching the side mirrors. Is something going to happen? Is anyone else getting out of the car? Is he approaching with you know a, a, something hidden behind his back? Mm-hmm. Like, and again, it's like if something happens, I have to get out and just run and take my chances. And he ends up, you know, I watched the whole way he ends up getting in the car and I don't know what he was doing, but we start driving again and now he pulls out like a crack bite. And so he literally like would just roll down the window as he's guiding me out of the neighborhood, smoke his crack, blow it out the window, roll the window back up. He like, he's really courteous. Didn't, you know, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't get me high or anything. Um, but like literally, like guided me out of the neighborhood, dropped me off in the middle of downtown Dallas. So apparently, he was just basically using me for the money, and then for a ride to his drug houses to pick up drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he like basically let me out, and he was like, you know, uh, we we have pictures of your your license and your ID, and we know where you go to school, and if you go to the cops, you know, we'll come after you and your family. And da, 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 da. And, um, so I ended up like basically calling some friends and having them guide me back because this is before GPSs and all that. And having mm-hmm. me guide me back to school, uh, cause I knew my parents weren't home at that point. Um, uh, and you know, you want to just go be around some people for some comfort. And I ended up just going around and hanging out with them for a while and being around friends and then head at home, uh, when I knew my parents would be there and they were like, Cause they just knew it was a good day. You know, you have your braces off, you have a haircut and they're just like, Oh, really good day. How'd it go? I was like, Oh, like it was good except for where I got kidnapped and they just like, start laughing. They're like, aha, uh-huh, that's cool. That's funny. I was like, no, like actually. And they're like, wait, what? And so I can kind of tell them the story. We ended up going to a police station and that turned into like a five or six hour ordeal in and of itself. Uh, because I had to write out, I had to first tell them the story and then write everything out. And then they sat there and started questioning me and questioning if it was real and why I was out of school. And I'm like, listen, like my parents knew I was gone from school. Like everyone knew this was a real thing. I wasn't, I wasn't like making this story up because I was skipping school. Like, I, you know, I'm a straight A student, like I'm top of my class, I'm not fucking just making up stories, but for some reason they thought I was just bullshitting them and making up stories because I was skipping school and I was wasting their time. And I remembered very distinctly because I told them about the the ATM. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, Oh, we're going to pull footage. Are you sure you want us to look at that? And I'm like, yes. And like right before I signed my statement and made it all official, mm-hmm. one of the cops walks in and he looks at me and he says, Oh, well, we have the footage from, from the bank. Like kind of like almost in a threatening way. I'm like, good. And he's like, what are we expecting to find? As is such a weird thing. And like, before I signed my statement, I literally was like, I, I told him, I was just like, this either fucking happened or I'm going insane. Because like after six hours of them questioning you and mm-hmm. making you doubt every last thing, you literally feel like you're going insane. And so, I mean, I signed and was like, yeah, like, and you know, later down the road, they get in contact with me again. And like, they saw him on video, like in the car and huddling down on the side and, and there was video from the mall and there was, you know, all it's like, it's, it's real. Like, I don't know why they were so suspect of the whole thing, but, um, you know, it, it all happened. And, uh, And I did one drive along trying to identify like where he took me, but it's really hard to be like, Oh, this is where I went. Like, I I don't know. You're in a state of shock. You don't remember what crack house you drove to. Mm. And nothing ever developed. They never found the guy. I mean, I don't really expect them to find the guy that nothing ever happened with it. It was just, um, yeah, I think bank, the bank ends up you know reimbursing you the money because it was stolen and so all that came out of it was i lost some gas lost some time and uh gained one hell of a story a different perspective yeah. on life
0: yeah definitely quite a story quite a story and
2: uh <laughs> i don't <laughs> even know what to say because it it's so crazy and
0: what started as an ordinary day, and it had to happen on that, that day as well. Yeah. You know, the day when you were like, oh, this is the great day. It's, you know, braces off and new haircut, everything. Everything's perfect. Even your family, when you get home, they're like, hey, it was a great day, right? And it happened on that day. And then the part about the police. I understand them being skeptical. It's very often the approach that they they have to take. So we can't really blame them for... What well, they did, but perhaps, you know, for for you at that stage, that was a horrible experience. First, you went through a deal um, with basically several times questioning whether you're going to get shot and buried. And then you have to go for six hours revisiting the story. Uh, eventually, you realize that they don't even fucking believe you. That must have felt pretty fucking bad.
1: Yeah, it's it's very frustrating when you're the victim of something and you literally have no one believing what happened. No one in an authority figure that's supposed to do something. Yeah. So anytime I, I read a story or hear a story along those lines of, Oh, like this is, yeah, you're the victim. Um, and no one believes you. It definitely resonates with me.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I know we were talking about earlier. I just, I started writing, articles for card player a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now. And um there's two of them out now. And the third one actually delves into that same story. Um I think it takes takes us all the way up until like getting in the car with the guy and then I wrote another one. It'll probably be a two to four part or a three to four part series. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much the same thing I just told you. Um, right. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm I'm actually going to read it. It's
0: it's very interesting because I know you also are writing a book, and that's real interesting to me. A book about your grandfather who's been in World War II. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, that one's been in in progress for quite some time now. Um, I've never been a writer at all. Uh, I I wrote well. So back in high school, I remember we had to write short stories um, based off of whatever book we had read in the past couple weeks Mm -hmm. and for that one is great gatsby i read three pages of great gatsby and i couldn't stand it so i never read it again and then i found out we had a short writing prompt on it um, that day in school i had to ask people who the main characters were what the general story was and i ended up getting like a hundred off of that paper and the teacher read it out loud to everyone on the basis of what good writing should be. So like I can write, but that being said, I haven't written anything professionally. I haven't written anything before. Um, The only time, well, the the articles for Player are the first thing I've done professionally. So it's been a very long process just because I don't write, I don't know the process, any of that. I start writing it back in, probably 2017. I have a few chapters done. So my grandfather served in world war two and he left behind his memoirs along with a lot of stories that he just told us as children Mm -hmm. and my mom and, you know, his brothers and sisters. And it's unique in the aspect that he wasn't just a foot soldier in world war two. He did just enlist and volunteer. Um, I, I, at this point in time, I don't remember if he enlisted or if he was grafted in, but essentially he volunteered for more classes and he volunteered to go and be a paratrooper
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then he volunteered to be a radio man and then he volunteered to be an explosives expert. And so the paratroopers at that point in time were essentially the predecessors to the special forces, the Green Berets, the Delta forces, all of those that we mm-hmm. now know um, in the US military. And so he was at the forefront of that. And so he would literally be the guy jumping out of the airplane, you know, with the radio on his back and the explosives expert. Mm-hmm. And he saw a lot more unique action based off of that than a lot of the soldiers that would be in the, the trenches and just, you know, firing weapon to weapon and kind of advancing forward as they were told, because they'd be in unique individual units of, you know, uh, 10 people and they would be working as a small team. And so you don't have an overarching system telling you what to do and how to do it. You were very much more of a, um, make up your mind as the best way to accomplish a mission.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he has, I think about 60 pages in his memoirs. And so what I'm trying to do is take his memoirs, um, because they're not quite enough for a full book, in and of themselves, but well, I'm trying to blend them with a little bit of my story, of uh, my time in the military, um, and kind of do a parallel story with it because I want to be able to pay him the dues and the respect that he deserves to be able to tell his story, but to do it not from a historical perspective because I think that's been overdone and I think people are bored off of that, but to find a avenue that will keep people engrossed within the story and find it entertaining while keeping true to what he did and what he, um, accomplished. So, um, what's the movie? Uh, have you ever seen Princess Bride? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. So in it, like the grandfather's telling a story to his, his grandson. And so you have this kind of parallelism between modern life and then they jump into this fantasy world. And in some respects, it's kind of what I want to do. Of like the modern life will be kind of my story of like my time in the military. And that will be, um, if you will, a little bit more sensationalized.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that, you know, I'll, I'll take the reality and I'll add to it to some extent. And I'll, I'll make that a little bit more oh, entertainment. But I want to keep very true to his memoirs, to what he did, to what he accomplished. I want that part to be completely accurate uh, and don't embellish it because mm. his life was already far more than enough to make for uh an interesting and motivational story mm. um so that's that's something i've been working on for a while and hope to have written out and produced before right. too much longer
0: that sounds awesome I, i'd definitely be interested in reading that in fact one of my favorite books um from the last few years uh in fiction is um, City of Thieves by author David Benioff or something like that. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, um, it's an awesome book. He writes, um, so he's an immigrant from Soviet Russia, and uh, his grandfather and grandmother were um, kids during the war in Leningrad where obviously the campaign was was really tough and there was the starvation you know so many people died of starvation there was the blockade uh in leningrad uh, during the campaign so it was it was crazy and he writes the book basically about his grandparents but in a fictional way um so read it i'm, I'm sure you're gonna enjoy it it's it's an awesome book he's an amazing author and. Um, in fact, everybody listening, you guys, if you want fiction about World World War Two, uh, one of the best books ever, I think, on the topic. It's it's funny, as funny as a war book can be, but it's funny, it's interesting. Um, the storyline is beautiful, and uh, it's just good writing as well. So very enjoyable. Um, City of Thieves. Uh, forgot the author. I think David Benioff. Um, awesome. That's the guy. Um, and another thing about that, have you ever watched, um, cause your, your grandfather was, um, so in, in a paramilitary, uh, was he in Europe, right? Right. Was, European campaign. In... Mm-hmm. Cause, uh, have you watched band of brothers?
1: Absolutely.
0: I've watched yeah. it like 10 times. One of my favorite.
1: I need to rewatch really that one. Oh, it's so good. So it's good. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. like
0: the way they present it as well you know as you you're following different characters throughout the movie, uh, throughout the series, and each character shows you a different function in the military, so you see the whole campaign through different eyes you see you see it from the medic's perspective, you see it from um, you know just the foot soldier's uh, perspective, you see it from the commanding officer's perspective then you see you know the how they progress during the war and different stages of the campaign. It's it's just one of the best series ever, and the the cast as well. Great actors and everything.
1: Yeah, I th- I think it's absolutely amazing, and you know it's interesting because I think there's been some good war movies that have been put out. You know, specifically like uh, Saving Private Ryan was absolutely mm. exceptional. But oh, yeah. there's very few uh, series and shows. That have come out there within that same realm. I mean, Band of Brothers. I haven't watched it. Uh, Was it the Pacific? I want to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. watched the Pacific as well. I, I wasn't in love with it. Let's put it this okay. way. I think it's, it's good, but. But not in the same realm not 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 even close and the way they present the whole thing because if i remember correctly because band of brothers i can pretty much tell you the dialogues because i watched it really like 10 times or something but the pacific i watched once and uh, maybe i'll watch it again after after talking about it now but um it was a bit different in a way that it followed i think three different characters throughout the series so it lost that part which was really appealing to me that you're you're learning to see the whole campaign through different eyes, right? Because that was, that was beautiful. This is more following three different characters through their uh, path in okay. the Very different, still really good, but, but really different. So it accomplishes um, somewhat different things. And if I remember correctly, it was, um, well, a lot more sort of violence, In the movie which is i mean it's a war movie there's gonna be violence right and it was that's in pacific obviously notoriously everybody's saying that that was a completely crazy uh, up and personal campaign compared to to europe that's not to diminish you know people who fought in europe but it's a different experience in europe you would have a day off for example you know and a lot of the conflict was basically with uh bombing and artillery etc whereas in the pacific you're fighting on these small islands in the jungle where every night there's a potential of the Japs sneaking up and cutting your throat so you you're always alert to the fact that well you know it's not just um you know where we fight tomorrow you're fighting 24 7 because they they are they're sneaking up on you probably at that very moment and and also the climate obviously as well because you're you're basically sitting um, for for big parts of the year in the torrential rain and uh, completely miserable with all the diseases around so a very different feel and obviously the pacific the series kind of kind of showed it in its own way so perhaps um, it wasn't necessary for it, for it to follow the same Uh, storyline as the Band Band of Brothers and and showing the different functions of of the military. Because the campaign, of course, was very different. So maybe if we judge it just based off that, then it was actually pretty good. Still, Band of Brothers for me is is just beautiful uh, on so many levels and Uh, Pacific was okay.
1: I need to watch Band of Brothers again and I I think Uh, Pacific for the first time. But yeah, I think every campaign throughout history has to be told through a different lens kind of what you just talked about of how the war itself was fought because each one is so unique and so different and I mean talking through the timeline the history and the stories I I remember and this is one of the chapters I've written is for my grandfather I remember as a child, like I was about eight or nine years old and we went over and my grandma and grandpa were watching us and my brothers were in the back room and he had this giant tin of army soldiers, mm-hmm. like the green army soldiers with the bazooka guy and all that. And I was sitting there in the hallway playing with them and you know, you're know you making the imaginary sounds in your head and you get tired and you put it away and then they were still happening. And I was around the corner. And I look up and my grandfather had pulled out an old real projector and mm-hmm. he was kind of sitting there by himself just watching video footage from World War II that he still had stored. And at that time, literally what it was that he's watching was, I don't know if it's him or his platoon, his company, who it was, but going in and helping to liberate a um, a concentration camp. And that was like my first introduction to you know, what World War II really was. And we had those conversations. And so it's like it wasn't that campaign that you're talking about from the Pacific. It wasn't that up close and personal and I can get shanked every night. A lot of it was, you know, artillery warfare where it's a long distance fight. But then they did have those very close, very intimate, very personal, uh, human-to-human both battles, but also liberations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like every campaign is very different. Every war is different. Every person is different. And trying to find the scope and the lens in order to tell that story appropriately is, um, I think, part of the most integral part of keeping it true to what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's
0: still a lot of space, I think, for fictional writing. on that scene because the story is i mean imagine these people like your grandfather he went through this and not just went through this went through this um from the paramilitary is that is that the right word is, is that the whatever uh, the, 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 yeah, uh, paratroopers. the paratroopers that yeah. that's the word i was looking for um he went through it there which is basically you're dropping sometimes dropping behind the lines right which is a crazy thing to do from from a military perspective you know and obviously that's what the japanese were doing a lot as well but uh, they famously loved to die for the country or well, maybe not loved but they were willing willing to do that um at scale which is crazy which is also something very different right because, uh, I mean, some of the Japanese soldiers, they they um, turned themselves in or finally laid their arms down. Like the last one, I think in 1973 or something, he kept fighting in the jungles uh, somewhere. I think it was after that.
1: I won't say it was in the 90s. Was it? Really? I, oh, wow. I mean, it was because there was like an 80 or 90 year old Japanese soldier. I mean, it was something absolutely ridiculous. mm I know, I know exactly one. I may Google this real fast because yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it was, most people are just like, yeah, the war ended. It's like it didn't actually end for everyone at the same yeah. time. Yeah. It's crazy. So
0: obviously, the, the two campaigns and uh, the two wars were, were different in so many regards, but that's war either way. And I can only imagine what that experience of finding the concentration camp must have been like that that's one of the toughest and yet most interesting episodes in Band of Brothers. Not to spoil it for those who haven't watched it yet and are eager to watch it right now, but uh it's one of the most interesting uh episodes and it's um, it's crazy to think of you know people like your grandfather went through this and it's not just a story for them. It they lived it and um they sort of you know, went into this rabbit hole and came out the other way, and uh, and are still willing to watch the reels. Um, I can only imagine like how how that must feel.
1: Yeah, I I know, um, and and I looked up real fast. It's 1974, so you were spot on that the last mm-hmm. Japanese soldier uh, came out in the Philippines. But I know we brought up Saving Private Ryan earlier, and mm-hmm. My grandfather and some of the other men that he served with in World War II were asked to watch a reel, uh, uh, you know, the, the first movie, first run of it, whatever you want to call that, uh, pilot um, of Saving Private Ryan. They flew them mm-hmm. over to Europe because they wanted an actual honest-to-goodness feeling from the soldiers that were there, and Steven Spielberg was there. And he asked them, you know, what did you think? What was your impression? Because when they watched it, they all just sat there silently. Um, uh, they all sat there wa- yeah, silently, most with tears in their eyes. And they kind of all just said, it's too real. That was their only complaint that they felt that the American and the entire world populace would not believe it. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was just, it was so spot on. It was so accurate. The war was so bloody and it was so visceral. That was really their only complaint, if you will, that they thought that they needed to tone it down for people to believe the accuracy of the movie. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so they definitely went through, they definitely all live through events. I don't think any of us could ever imagine. Um, you know, but, from the civilian side from the military side whatever you want however lens you want to view it through um that you know they, they liberated holocaust camps they they stumbled across thousands of bodies that were buried uh that were nothing but skeletons they saw the atrocities that the nazis were willing to uh, bestow upon their their own people and people they had never met before mm. you know i'm under no illusion that America or American soldiers are unscathed and, um, you know, haven't done atrocities of their own throughout the course of history. Um, There's no illusion of that, but I I think war is, as my grandfather used to say, very bluntly war is hell. Mm. Um, And they relive that daily throughout their entire lives. So PTSD has always been a real thing for anyone that has undergone war. Mm-hmm. As a society, we have only come to terms with the mental health um, ramifications of what a soldier goes through, what a civilian goes through during wartime. In the recent years, I think it was only in uh, you know, the Afghan and Iraqi war recently that PTSD started becoming talked about. Yeah. Um, prior to that was in the 90s with the gulf war the original gulf war and i don't think ptsd was ever talked about at that stage of life mm-hmm. so i know my grandfather i'm sure suffered through ptsd i remember you know you just walk in and he would just have tears in his eyes and he'd be remembering something right um so it's always been there it's always been re- relevant um something oh we didn't talk about this earlier slightly, um, down rabbit holes here from probably where we were going in life. But, um, when I started screaming, you you talk about my Mm screaming, I, I reached out to an organization, um, called till Valhalla and it's, uh, for soldiers who commit suicide. Um, they literally raise money, uh, to try to support, you know, military members who have left the military uh, in their mental health to try to provide them with the resources to provide, try to prevent um, soldiers suicide. Mm-hmm. Because and I reached out to them because right when I started streaming, um, I think the day of, or maybe a day before I had a uh, non-commissioned officer, one of my good friends who I served with in Korea who had committed suicide. Um, literally the day I started streaming. Wow. and so i wanted to actually try to give back um through what i'm doing
2: mm.
1: and wow
0: wow that that is i didn't i didn't know that it's um i don't even know what to say i think like it doesn't even need a comment from me what do i know i i, I wasn't there as they say you know but it's such a topic that needs needs to be heard because, you know what, when we're talking about PTSD, we're talking about the army most most and foremost, but what's happening right now in the Mm -hmm. States with the police situation, we, well, I say we, but a lot of people underestimate the kind of stress, the kind of circumstances they're experiencing, and uh, it's still a human condition, right? So perhaps in the military, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you... It's it's all more exposed. And speaking of that, um, there's a wonderful podcast episode that I keep recommending to all my friends, who, especially those who weren't in the military, but I think it's, for those who were, it's uh, especially interesting as well. Is it's the episode of uh, Jacko Willick's podcast with Dakota Meyer. Um, that one, if you haven't listened to it already, if you have, then it's going to stick with you (laughs) forever. But if you haven't check it out, it's probably like three hours or something. And I don't even know what to say about that episode just. it's you know it, it it shows a lot of the issues that you you just talked about you know it, it talks about uh, the p t s d but also talks about the 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 war in in uh up and personal kind of situation and um i, I, I don't want to spoil it for everyone and i'm not going to give it justice anyway i'm i'm i won't be able to give it any sort of sort of teaser that it uh, it deserves it's a wonderful podcast episode if somebody but be prepared like for for some of you guys listening and you want to jump into that episode be prepared you're gonna be I I remember I was listening to that episode while walking um, with my son he was in a stroller he was just like whatever four. Four months old or something. And I I used to like, you know, we go for the stroll and I would put some podcast on, and then I usually have a walk for an hour. So I I walked for the whole three hours. Uh I felt tears running. I felt completely I'm there in a safe environment. I'm I'm there walking with my son. Life is good, sun is shining. I was experiencing a lot of stress just from listening to the story. Uh and yeah.
1: Uh, I know on, 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 that, I mean, you touched on what's happening across America right now on the whole. And, um, you know, it's like, I think the reality of life is, is we have a very divided nation. And there are some people are saying police are evil. No black lives lives. Movement is evil. This is evil. That's evil. And the reality of life is it's all a dichotomy. Um, there are some very terrible police officers out there. There's some very good ones. There are some very terrible people in the Black Lives Matter movement. There's some very good people. There's good ideas and there's bad ideas. And until we accept the reality that no, not all police are awful. No, the Black Lives Matter movement isn't uh, trying to kill everyone. And you know, whatever you want to say, whatever your thought line, whatever your belief is, you can't be completely um galvanized on one respect
2: Mm.
1: because you don't see an ability to allow for change um to me it's like okay like there's there's holes and there's flaws within the police force i don't fully believe in what they do at this point in time i don't fully disbelieve in what they do but there's flaws in it how do we change that how do we change the system how do we change the flaws And we don't do it by saying they're evil. We don't do it by saying they're going to do this or do that, or they're the most beloved force. We say they're flawed. How do we fix the system? Okay. You don't like black lives matter. You say all lives matter. Okay. Well, that's not changing anything. Well, what is it you do like about this movement? What do you not like about the movement? How can you make your voice heard? How can you influence people to change so that it becomes what you believe it should be? And the way isn't, to galvanize yourself. The way isn't for absolute disbelief. I was sitting at, you know, win poker, playing 8160 mixed games the other day. And on one, and you know, I think they're both multimillionaires. On one side, you have a Trump supporter. And on one side, you have a Biden supporter. And I literally mean directly to my left and directly to my right, sandwiching me in between. The debate was happening. They're both watching a debate and yelling at each other how the person debating is an absolute idiot and how we're all going to hell if they win and you know, back and forth. And I literally said, guys, shut the fuck up. Like, one of you is wrong. One of your, your people is going to win. Either Biden will win or Trump will win. That's the reality of life. And by sitting here and saying, we're all going to hell if the other guy wins, if that's half the nation, if 50% of the nation believes that if Trump wins, then you know it's complete anarchy and chaos, or vice versa for Biden, then it's going to come true. You have to accept the fact that you may be wrong that this may become a reality and how you work within that reality and how do you shape that reality to become what you want to be a part of you know and I think that's the issue that we're seeing as a nation on the whole right now um, is just. The inability to accept a position as something other than your own and the ability, inability to try to improve upon separate positions and work with each other. Mm. And that's where like we're seeing the downfall of the nation right now is galvanization without trying to help or change the other position. And that's what's a scary thing right mm. now. Um, yeah.
2: And,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely and that of course is like a topic on its own which we could talk hours and hours about but i want to circle back about the the police police thing i do think it's important i mean for me i'm just watching it here from from europe with this belief of what's going on right but i do think it's important to to talk about the personal stories right because once somebody sees police as a force, as a machine, you know, it's not personal. When you tell a story about North, uh, North Korea, South Korea situation, well, it's all good and nice. And, you know, shot the miss- missiles, uh, shot the speakers, you retaliate with three times more missiles. That's very news- newsworthy, right? But then that fuck up of 600 people marching up and then burning on the bridge, right? That is also the reality and whose fault is that is that the fault of all the uh, all the army as an establishment or it's a fault uh, a fault of some specific individuals who didn't know better and made a lot of mistakes along the way and there's bad apples in every organization and just because an organization stands for something doesn't mean that it doesn't have a face each each individual is fighting their own battle there you know you don't know what happened with those guys marching up the i mean maybe you know i don't know but to me it seems like okay these guys made a stupid ass decision marching up the bridge but you also said that nobody slept for like 48 hours right so a lot of and you know people would no sleep and under stress and making some bad decisions probably in some cases, it was lack of training. In some cases, it was purely just you're so tired you, you don't even think, and it happens. It happens in every walk of life. It happens with the doctors, right? How many how many bad situations happen because of of a doctor's mistake? Now, all doctors are, are wrong, probably not. Hopefully not. Anyway, let's let's uh, <laughs> let's go away from from this topic. But I do think it was, it was important to. Because um, actually, one more thing that you said, right? Because when you were describing, uh, well, we still t- were talking about the World War II campaign, and you said that obviously there were atrocities done by the American soldiers as well. It's also something that we have to always remember: war is war, and sure, the winners write the narrative, and and they you know are presented as the good guys because they're doing the presentation after all, right? But war is always ugly either way and there's going to be bad stuff happening on either side like if if we think about it from a logical perspective what um what was his name general lemay right the Mm -hmm. chief commander of your air forces if america would have lost the war he would have been tried as a war criminal because he just basically burned out hundreds of thousands probably millions of civilians knowing that he's doing exactly that and his justification for that was anybody living in proximity to the military factory is by definition uh, a military person and that included like hundreds of thousands of people who they just burned to death with the napalm in japan and then after that in in vietnam and in, uh, in the korean war as well and it's crazy right yet that's not something that, you know, especially Americans—they don't dwell on that, you know, because it's not a pretty, um, pretty part of the history. But it's part of the history, and you have to understand, you know, if you would zoom in on that. And nowadays, imagine like with all the social media and stuff, would that have happened? Like, good luck, good luck trying to burn a village—never mind a whole city, all right? So that's also something that we're probably ill-prepared right now because so much. Of the public discourse is on display acutely all the time in social media, wherever you go, and all the points are always radical it's either black or white in a sense uh, you know there's no gray area at all in any
1: in any argument, which is which is crazy hundred percent hundred percent I if I remember correctly, is article number one I wrote for Card Player that I allude to this. Maybe it's article two um, that I allude to this exact thing of if we tie it back into poker, obviously we're looking at an entire political, socioeconomic landscape right now between our conversation and wartime and how military works. But if you tie it back into poker, you know you, you have the same thing on a very micro level where people will look at an aggressive path of a game tree or people look at a passive path of a game tree. And there's arguments back and forth as to why one way is better than the other. And one way will say, oh, this, this path is more solved. And this is obviously the way. And it just happened with Phil Galifond and Phil Helmuth, where Galifond was expressing his you know, belief that Helmuth does do a lot of things very well. And he is one of the greatest of all times even though we don't understand why a lot of people will um, say he's wrong and say he falls the wrong path. And people came out of the woodworks to attack Galifon for simply standing up and saying, Helmuth is doing things good. Um, And so the reality of life, whether it's in poker, whether it's in war, whether it's in agriculture, I don't care what you're looking at, there's people that are galvanized on both sides. And the reality is something in the middle. Maybe you need to be aggressive at some times and maybe you need to be a passive station at other time to counteract something else. Maybe the answer is not just always be one way, but to have those conversations with someone else, be willing to listen, be willing to say, Hey man, like, why, why do you raise here? Why do you burn the village here? Why do you do this? Why is it you're doing this? And sometimes it's, very clearly wrong, morally or from a situational perspective, it's, it's wrong. Cool. But most of the time, someone has a reason behind their actions. Why did we drop a nuclear war, a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima? As you said, like there was a belief and there was a reason for it.
2: Mm.
1: Well, actually, that bomb probably
0: saved more lives than it. Uh, than it took away. But the bombs over Tokyo, the, the Nepal bombs, why did we do that? Or why did you do that? And right. maybe there's a justification, but was it really worth the cost
1: of civilian population? Right. There's not always a justification by any stretch of yeah. imagination. You know, there's not always a reasonable or moral conscious reason for your actions in life. But at the same time, someone usually believes that there is. So it's worth the conversation versus the pure unbridled belief that someone is wrong. Mm. Absolutely. Because even if, and you know, that bomb
0: situation is, is interesting. And I definitely want to get back to what you just said about the fund and, and that tweet, because I, I also found it completely ridiculous what, what's going on there. So I want to discuss it. But that bomb situation, you know, people who would argue, well, specifically the atomic bombs, right? The two of them that you so gracefully dropped upon this earth. Um, one side can argue it should have never happened. It's an atrocity. It's, it's horrible. Another side would argue that it saved way more lives than it took away because we see it from, you know, the, the last soldier from the Japanese army uh, gave up or, you know, put down his arms in 1970 whatever it was for right and in fact he didn't come peacefully they needed uh, to ship his commanding officer to give him the direct order and commanding officer was like a fishmonger by that time already right? like an old guy fishmonger now he has to put in his old uniform and and come and basically talk sense to the guy right so you're facing that type of army with a completely different culture and completely different set of values, completely different view of the world. They are willing to fight to the last man. Women and children and, and everybody, right? We don't know how it would have played out. But the bombs stopped the war. So is it, you know, the one side, which it should have never happened, or is the other side? Well, it's, it, it's good that it happened because it stopped the war. Or maybe there's a gray area, because there's probably a gray. Both are right in a way. You know, Maybe there was a much better solution than that. Maybe it wasn't necessary in that form specifically. Maybe it was necessary at all, but at least we can discuss about it. But even a kind of monumental event like that gets divided uh, opinions from from different sorts of people, then those tiny events are getting even more and more de- de- divisive at the moment. Because, like, the, the Galphon thing was absolutely ridiculous. Phil Galphon just posted a tweet saying something along the lines of, you know, he always thought uh, Phil Helmuth is not um, too good of a poker player. He watched him play Heads Up Now. He was impressed. So he wants to apologize to Phil for whatever. He, whenever he said that he sucks at poker, basically, and he now thinks that Phil actually is onto something and he's great and he deserves the respect. So what Galphon did is basically ex- expressed his personal opinion, apologized to, to Helmuth, and basically just stated, I believe that you know, he's actually a pretty good player. And that caused so much backlash because some people got upset with him, like, no, he's not a good player. Right. Is it like a, some sort of statement that needs verifying? It's not a scientific fact. It's it's Galfon's belief. he thinks he's a good player. Uh, it's good. So what do you want to convince him that he doesn't believe that or you want to convince him that he's wrong? Why, why, why would you do that? And why, why do that so aggressively? I, I read some of the uh, tweets and replies. I thought like, guys, what, what is the discussion here? You know, why, why are you getting into this? Like, it, it makes no sense. And, you know, Galfon states his opinion. Somebody else states a completely different opinion. Uh, like, what are you actually trying to decide here? Like, what's, what's the point of this whole thing?
1: I know. I think it was Olivia Bousquet that reached out initially and started kind of the controversy of disagreeing. And it's fine to disagree with Phil there. Like, plenty of people disagree. But as you just said, like why is it turning into an argument why is it turning to a debate why are people saying Phil never should have never should have posted this like a man is entitled to his beliefs in life and why are you going so adamantly to oppose him on it um, I don't I want to say it's Dan Smith if I'm not I, I could be mistaken um, was said in a tweet like oh I'd be willing to to bet on it and I'd be willing to post my money. for, And, and Galphon kind of was like, there's nothing really to bet on. Like, this is just my belief. Well, you know, how are we trying to bet on my belief? What are you even mm. talking about here? Yeah, um, exactly. I know, Yeah, it's like a lot of the guys that came out of the woodwork. I, sorry, I believe Dan Smith, I could be wrong. Um, but I know Olivia Bousquet. I know mm. um, Fader Holtz. And they're very much people that are on a very distinctly different path in poker as to Helmut. They're very GTO people. They've done a lot of studying. They've done a lot of solving. Um, they have taken a very different path to poker than Phil Helmuth, who literally won the main event the year I was born. So 31 years ago, he won the main event. Mm. He had been playing for probably four or five years prior. So he's been playing for... Three and a half decades, you know, over the course of three and a half decades, he's obviously rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But he's also developed a style of play that is extremely unique to what it is. And it's also seen him, you know, with a lot of success throughout the years. So to say he's not good is obviously false. To say he's not good in a certain subset of tournaments, which they're saying was the high rollers and limited fields. Sure, he may not be good at those. Does he need to be good at those? No. Does he need to be good at everything? No. Do you have to personally believe that he's good? No. But to attack someone for saying, I believe that he's good and I'm gonna apologize because I thought he was bad. What's what's the point? I don't, I don't understand it. I almost feel that you have a lot of multimillionaires, or at least supposed multimillionaires, based off of their earnings. It's hard to say within poker, that have been coddled over time. Mm. Um, I I think what we spent the last hour to hour and a half talking about is my journey through life and what I've witnessed personally and what I've witnessed through the lens of my grandfather. And I think you can say, I've been willing to put myself out there and experience life, experience new worlds and experience um, some very harsh realities. And that's why I know I personally can sit across the table from the vast majority of people Um, and I have a realization that I'm sitting in a multi-billion dollar casino. I have a gorgeous cocktail waitress bringing me drinks, anything I want. If you want food, it's at your fingertips. You should be playing with money you can lose. So you have thousands of dollars at your disposal that you can just lose freely. How are you upset at the poker table? How do you get on tilt for things that happen at the table? How is that you know, something that still occurs? So you very rarely will find me mad at a table very, very, very rarely. I feel like that should translate to these guys of like, hey guys, like you're supposedly multimillionaires that have made your living off of a game who've you know have the the resources, the ability, the skill to study, to learn, to think, to adapt and evolve your game and into an ability to have the comfiest lifestyle imaginable. How do you have such animosity against this other player in your game? How do you spend that much time thinking about him? That when mm-hmm. someone says something nice and says, man, like, you know, my bad helmet is actually pretty good. Like, I apologize. How do you have that much care like towards this one player to, to reach out with that? It's, it's, Almost was confusing to me, really.
0: Mm. Yeah. And the thing about, you know, people getting mad at the poker table in live games, I think if we dig deep, they're probably mad at themselves on some level because they probably shouldn't be there because they're there for clearly the different reasons, the, the wrong reasons. Because if they were there for the right reasons, there's no way they would have get mad because there's never any Any good reason? Well, almost never any good reason. You know, if the game is fair and square, et cetera, et cetera, because obviously there are situations where you are right to be mad. Maybe you need to control yourself, but, you know, either way. But, yeah, and and that Galfan tweet situation, it's just, it's crazy how, and it's not only that, it's just it happened recently, but there's so many things with, you know, one person is arguing about some, or making an argument about something, Another other people start replying on the same topic, but from a completely like completely different point. You know, Galfond is saying, I believe this guy is good and want to apologize to him. And, you know, that's why I think he's good. I liked it. And then the other guy's are like, no, he's not good and et cetera. Cause, so one person is talking about his beliefs. This, uh, others are trying to find some sort of um, scientific explanation as to why. Helmuth is not good in a specific lineup in a specific tournament structure, which is ridiculous. Like, uh, you're talking about two different things, and it, it makes no sense. And yeah. a lot of this is also like, you know, I feel like a lot of people are not willing to have a conversation publicly nowadays because of this toxicity in a way. And, and in, in some sense, whenever you're putting yourself out there, you know, with a tweet, or with an article, now you're writing for card player um, with your Twitch channel, right? Whenever you're out there, you're exposing yourself for this attack surface for some people to actually be toxic and just basically, because whatever you do, even if you write the best article ever, if you you do the best podcast episode ever, if you do the best Twitch stream ever, there's going to be a few guys who are going to find a fault with it mostly without even reading it or, or watching it or listening to it, there's going to be some fault and they're going to be real quick to let you know. Like, let you know and, and say, I think this sucks. What you do sucks. And, it okay, and unfortunately stops a lot of people from doing things because, you know, why would you, because it is not a pleasant feeling, you know, to do, to put in a lot of, your work a lot of your a lot of yourself into something put it out there publicly for the good reasons for example that you know the good reasons of you want to help people and especially with your twitch channel it's there is no way you're gonna be making a ton of money from twitch channel right but you do it to Bring joy to some people. You do it to educate some people. You, you 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 do it to give some light entertainment for some people, and to maybe have a platform for uh, talking about your other ideas and talking about life and your experiences, which which is an important thing, right? But you do it, and to see people come back to you negatively, it's painful. It's painful for everyone. And, and the funny thing is that you know that the people who are willing to attack you. They're the absolute minority. There is just a tiny percent of, of the whole. So for the most part, people are good and nice, et cetera., et etc. But percentage-wise, the people who are nice, they're not going to say anything on, you, know, in the comments or whatever. And the ones that are not so nice, they're quite eager to express themselves, right? Which kind of creates this, this balance in the social media where you see a lot of negative opinions and a lot of uh, assholes, to be honest, out there pushing their agendas all the time. Whereas the people who are on the normal side, which is the vast majority, they're the silent ones because you know what's going to happen. You know, you're going to send out a tweet to defend Galfon, for example. You're going to have all the shit spill over to your pond and everybody's going to throw bricks on in your face now, right? Because you, how, how dare you defend Galfond and then you're in the midst of this whole thing, which is such an unfortunate and weird situation that we live in.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I know while I was streaming, I, I think I was streaming during the World Series with O8 Grinder and Landon Tice, who's kind of becoming an up and cl- up and coming name in the poker world. He jumped mm-hmm. in there for just a few minutes. You know, he's made some waves with um, solve for Y and a couple other uh, groups out there. And he was in there for a couple minutes. And I've never talked to the kid before he's 21. He's starting to play some high stakes poker. And I, I just took a minute, you know, while he was in the chat and he just said, Hey man, i like, I know you're 21. I'm, I'm only, I think that's 30 at the time. Like, I'm not that much older than you, but like, there's a large enough gap. Like, let me just offer you one piece of advice as you move forward in life. Um, because people are, everyone's offering him advice and how to, how to play tournaments or how to do this and how to do this. And I was just like, you know what? Like, forget what other people think, like, don't care about other people. And obviously you, you say that with like the grain of salt, Of like, okay, like to some extent care what your friends and family and parents and all that think, But like, as you just hit on, no matter what you do, no matter how perfectly do you do it. If I tell you like, man, run Chucks, I really like your hat. Like they're, they're awesome. Like best baseball team ever. Someone can be offended by that.
2: Mm-hmm. Someone's like, I don't like
1: baseball. Baseball fucking sucks. Why are you talking about baseball? Go away. Like we're, we're not here for this. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do somehow is divisive. So, if you understand that, especially at an early age, like no matter what, like your decision should be like for the best choice for you, for your family, for whatever it is you're doing, it should be your best choice moving forward. Because if you try and make someone else happy, no matter what someone else will be you know, negatively impacted. Um, And so it's the same in poker. It's the same in, in life on the whole to just kind of move forward with putting all that noise and that negativity to the side. If someone in your life is one of those people that constantly is negative, you know, for me, I'm very big on just, uh, you know, leaving them behind. I don't need to be friends with someone just because I theoretically invested five years of my life with them. If that's the type of person you are, you can leave my life. I don't need you anymore. I, I don't, I don't see a lot of people do that. Mm. Uh, I think that's something that's a habit a lot of people should work on is just understanding that someone will be negative no matter what you do in life. And you have to live your life for the best version of yourself, the best choice that you can moving forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And I mean, in the end of the day, you have to do things for yourself, as, as basically recapping what, what you just said. And it's hard not to uh, pay attention to what people are saying to you because that's also not a, a great advice. You know, you have to, like just speaking from my own experience, I, I do check the comments, I do check uh, the things, but I know that for the most part, a vast majority of people who actually want to give good feedback, uh, they reach out privately. They don't reach out on social media and I don't blame them because they express their love or, or their suggestions or anything. They want to do it in a form, which is a one-to-one, which is what I want to do as well. Whenever I'm talking to somebody about the stuff that they do, I prefer to take it on personally as opposed to put a tweet out there. And we all saw how how it worked for Galfon. Speaking of Galphon, let's talk a bit about the Galphon Challenge, which restarted, and um, you're doing the official commentary together with some other guys um, who are joining.
1: Yeah, um, that came about as of my streaming as well. Um, I, I've, it's ironic. Uh, you, you said you first noticed me because of you know getting on Twitch, getting their streaming uh, during the WSOP. And... I reached out to Henry Kilbane. I think I just. I think it was
0: actually before I, I noticed you before your first stream. If if we oh, yeah, because yeah, I, I saw it on <laughs> on Twitter. I don't know how it came about, and I yeah. know that Henry sent you a message because I even remember there was a tweet about the microphone. People were right. sending you suggestions, and uh, uh, Henry recommended the Blue Yeti, and I thought like, okay, I'm not gonna. Shit on that parade! So <laughs> I get that, and uh, so yeah, it was way back. It was way back. It was before the series when I first got to see you. And I remember the first stream I saw was um for me. It was early morning, right? So for you, it was whatever it was. I, I don't really know how the time zones translate, but like nine hour difference, I guess. And you were streaming with your little cocktail of whatever, drinking old fashions or something like that and uh, enjoying yourself, playing, having fun, having an interaction with like 10 people watching or 12 people watching. And I saw that and I thought like, this is awesome because he's actually having fun and He's doing it for the right reasons, right? And let's face it, you know, sometimes people look at the, their numbers of like, oh, there's like 20 people watching me. That's bullshit. What if they were in your room with you? 20 people is a lot of people, man. A lot of people. Right? Sometimes you have to put things in perspective. You know, occasionally you might think like, ah, this stream, like whatever, just a hundred people watching. hundred people
1: is a big room. hundred percent. Yeah, I... I remember that tweet, I, I sent it out and I literally said exactly just that, I was asking for advice on equipment, I was asking for advice on setting up the stream for, for getting on Twitch, and Henry Kilbane, uh, GTO commentator over on Twitter, um, he was one of the people that reached out to me, and he's worked with Galfond in the past, he did his uh, original Galfond challenge, he worked with EPT, I believe it was. He's been around the commentary game for a while. And like, he's only 25, but like, yeah. he's, we were talking and he was just like, man, like I've had so many people help me along, I want to give back. Like, I, I feel like I didn't even pay my dues. People just want to help me and like, I want to give back. And so he helped me set my original stream. I've probably done three to five by myself, a couple with the uh, WSOP stuff. And he reached out to me and said, hey, man, like the galfond challenge is going to restart. Chance Corinth is going to get in there. 35,000 hands versus Phil Galfond. Can you help me out? I, I need someone to help me like make the stream a reality. And I was thinking like once, maybe twice a week at most, like, okay, like mm-hmm. I'll get in there. I'll, you know, help behind the scenes, kind of make some magic happen to present it to the people. And, uh, you know, I get an opportunity to jump in there once or twice and the more closer and closer we got to it, he kind of made it more like readily apparent that we were looking at Tuesday through Saturday, you know, five days a week for two months straight. I was going to be in the booth with him. I've done five streams on my own. Mm-hmm. Or I, get, I think it's three streams on my own, two streams with 08 Grinder, and now I, I'm getting the opportunity for the Galafon Challenge, one of the biggest heads-up matches. Normally we have Negron and Polk, but we'll get into that. You know, shenanigan. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest matches of the year, um, and I have ultimate undying respect for Galafon of what he's trying to do for the industry with Run It Once Poker uh, how he's trying to change the landscape for the online realm. Um, and so to be able to try to help out and present, you know, his challenge present him you know, in the light that I feel like he deserves, um, to be able to get a foot in the door. I've wanted to do commentary for a very long time. I did some with David Tuckman one time over the summer, uh, for a world series of poker, um, and I would like at some point to step in with my, my good friend, Ali Najad, into his booth, you know, into the booth of wonders. But to get to step in and like have this opportunity is amazing. Uh, and, you know, we've been in there day after day and it's long days. It's five and a half hours sitting in a chair. It's, you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of money for it, but it's absolutely minimal. This is more of a passion. You know, we're going to call to action. We're going to tell stories. We're going to talk about the people in there. And, you know, I think at our pinnacle right now, we've had 200 people mm-hmm. Uh at the pinnacle of the original Galfon challenge at 8,000 people. Yeah. So in perspective, that was, I think
0: that there was, t- wasn't it 20,000 at one point, oh, like for good. the, for the final, Whoa. final, final day, that was insane numbers.
1: That's absurd.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was one of them. That's the thing, I was, one I was watching. I was, Everybody's was watching. watching, everybody that I know was watching. And I, I was doing the commentary uh, for that uh, original, the first challenge, right, against Vennie Vidi, who, who was actually a friend of mine. Uh, and I did like five of those. And I didn't watch a single one. Well, and I, I watched bits and pieces of, of other ones, but the, the final day,
1: basically, I watched the whole thing. Yeah,
0: uh, it was it was such an entertaining match.
1: This one, this one has been pretty entertaining so far itself. I mean, we've had several lead changes at the very onset, but then we had Phil swing out to almost a three hundred thousand dollar lead a week mm-hmm. ago, to the point that it busted chances roll on WSOP, and yeah. he we've taken the last week off as he had to reload more money just to get back up and running. And we only played one day since then, uh, which is yesterday. And we, he, he came back to $73,000 win yesterday, $78,000 win. Mm-hmm. So Phil's still leading by 200,000, but it's definitely like this very contentious amongst the, the chat, um, of, should chance to even be in there and why is he wasting his time? And he's just punting. Then, you know, he just has these massive days and it's like, Oh, maybe he's not so bad. And you're just like, guys, like mm. he knows what he's doing. He runs a coaching stable with some of the most you know well-known people in the industry. Like he's no slouch. You're in for a battle. This is a match. This is not just like Phil golf on defeating some random guy. And it's like, no, like guys, they know what they're doing and they have millions of dollars on the line here. And mm-hmm. for some reason, people think just because it's Phil Galifond that he will crush Chance Corn. It's like, no, guys. Like, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've definitely been, as as you said, I was watching you and Henry and Tuck in the booth and Stapleton in the booth. You know, I was, I was listening to y'all's voices on the first Galphon challenge. It was Vinnie Vitti and uh, Action Freak following that and a little mm-hmm. bit of the Bill Perkins versus uh, Galifond and Jungleman. I've watched throughout the duration and I feel like I was kind of almost recycling back into at the start of this year, back in, I think that's January, February, March timeframe. I was that kid with a dream again. I was watching all, I was listening to you. I was like, man, this is exciting. And then I, you know, in a very short time I win my second bracelet during the summer. Mm-hmm. And now I am in the booth doing the official commentary for Phil Galifond. I. You know, I have Galifon's number. I text him to say, hey, man, how's it going? Are you, are you going to run today? Are we, you know, what's going on? How's life? Whatever it is. Like, it's, it's it's kind of a microcosm of my entire poker career of like, kid with a dream, World Series success. Now I'm somehow where I am. And it's, yeah, I, I am absolutely humbled by it. You know, there's no question about that. I'm, I'm here, I think, because I have a passion for it. And I think it still shows. And, man, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away at where I've come mm. I and mean, the people I'm surrounded by. Yeah. But the most important
0: thing is you enjoy it and because uh, you can see it from, from the work that you do. And, you know, you, you have the passion for it, like you said. And, uh, you know, I definitely recommend people checking out your uh, Twitch channel, um, galphone Challenge or no galphone mm-hmm. Challenge. It's just fun to watch. And uh, yeah, this golfing challenge is going to be really interesting. I still haven't seen a single match, I'm following the results all the time, like the updates, and I, I see the highlight clips on uh, Twitter, but I haven't uh, made the time to actually watch it yet. But I'm very curious, I want to see. I, I no chance, a bit, we've played a bit, not too much, and I think. For those of for those people who've seen him, especially live, right, playing live, he does create an impression of somebody who's like, oh, this guy's just punting. He's just easygoing. He's always the soul of the table, you know, having the conversation, having the the side bets going, having uh, you know, just making the fun, making everybody feel. Um, good at the table. He's definitely one of the guys who makes the table come alive, right? And one of the reasons he gets to play all the wonderful games uh, that we still have around the world. But some people mistake it for like, ah, he's an easygoing, just like, yeah, whatever, you know, almost a recreational player, which he is totally not. He's super smart and very focused on poker and definitely a great player, very thinking player. Much like Phil, you know, obviously Phil has a completely different personality, but they're both very creative, very, very smart. And uh, I want to see what's going to happen because obviously Gelfand Challenge offers so many new dimensions to poker with the, the length of the challenge. The 35,000 hands in, in the case of Challenge Against a Chance, that's, that's a lot of hands. And that's a lot of hands which you have to live through. And that's an experience of ups and downs and you have to manage your emotions and you have to plan ahead. This is not something an average poker player encounters, you know, because at the worst case, you're experiencing a downswing. You might decide, well, you know what, i to take a week off. Well, you don't in the challenge, in the format of the challenge, you really don't. So that's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to be definitely keeping an eye on that and um, everybody should tune in. and. Um, watch it
1: appreciate it yeah i know i i, I said that 200 versus four eight thousand number earlier and it it was just like you said 200 when you like compare it in that scope doesn't sound like a lot 200 people were a movie theater we've yeah. literally filled a movie theater and we're the people on the big screen and you're just like so as you said 10 people in a room that's a lot of people in the room. That's, that's almost a very crowded room where you can't even interact with everyone.
2: Mm. 20
1: people in a room. You're like, man, like I saw half the people in a night, 200 people is a movie theater. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't even, you know, 4,000 is probably like a high school football game in some places. You know? Um So I think that's the important thing of, of streaming for anyone that ever looks into getting into it or for doing a podcast is keep it in perspective. I mean, mm. I feel like poker, I think that's something we've, we've kind of sub hit on a lot throughout this podcast is just perspective, you yeah. know, um, throughout our conversation about war, about our conversation with streaming, about, um, I mean, everything we've touched on is very much perspective based. And one thing that you just mentioned was chance seems to have that life fire in him that everyone wants to be around and sees him as being attractive to the table and, but not necessarily as like a killer player. And so people discredit him. And, um, while I was doing the stream and doing the commentary for the Galifon challenge, Christian Soto from solve for Y reached out to me Mm -hmm. because Henry and I were talking about getting into private games. And I said, it's so much more about your personality and about who you are and about that skill set of just socializing with people and that dynamic play versus if you're giving action or not. If you're the tightest guy in the room, but you make everyone feel happy and welcome, and they're going to invite you in. If you're this loose guy that's giving action and just, you know, throwing everything around, but you're an asshole to be around or just no fun, like you're not going to get invited in. And, And Chin reached out to me on Twitter and we were talking and he's like, man, I couldn't agree more about private games. That's 100% accurate. Mm. And like, this is clearly a guy that knows what he's talking about when it comes to getting some invites into those games. And, you know, it's all perspective. Like, what's your skill set? Is your skill set poker? Cool. Introduce a social, yeah, skill set. You have to be social in this game. You Mm. have to have that wider perspective in order to get into games that you actually want to be in.
0: Yeah. And especially like, it's not just a question of, oh, I want to play pr- private games. It's also like, in terms of business, because I have a specific example. I don't know how much detail I want to give about it, but <laughs> if, I, if I go very vague, it sounds like something really weird. And, you know, the police officers that were interrogating you um, for those six hours, they wouldn't approve of the story. <laughs> they would say this never happened. but. Um, I was in one of the uh, stops for one of the major tournament series and there was no action. It was not in the States. It was, there was no, uh, fuck it, it was in Australia. <laughs> it was in Australia. It was the, oh, mountain, the, the Aussie millions, yeah. right? And some true. years the action was awesome. That year, the action, the general public action, there was no action. There was the Hashim's game and Joe Hashim who was, uh, one of the nicest people in the poker world in my opinion. And it's so nice like how how much sort of personality he has in in Australia because people would just randomly walk over to him while he's sitting in the high stakes area, you know, playing, it would ask for an autograph. Right? And it's beautiful. But anyway, so that game is ten times higher than the highest game in the basically in the casino. And that game is isn't a casino, but it's pretty much private, because there's a list of people if you're not on the list, you're not playing. Right? I was lucky enough to play, not every day, but you know, some, some of the days. I was lucky enough to be there. It was absolutely a fun game to play, uh, just lots of really interesting personalities at the table. But I tell you what, as soon as chance got in town, there was immediately a seat for him. right and it was it was just and to be honest you know that was already a fun table to begin with when chance came over and joined you know for a few days that fun table all of a sudden became a super fun table and it's just he has that little bit of of something and you know everybody is sort of looking forward well Okay, everybody, there's probably like uh, a lot of people sending me messages right now of like, no, I don't look forward to Chance playing in my <laughs> games. The chance sucks or whatever. But you can keep that opinion to yourself. All I'm saying is I like Chance and um, I wish him luck. I like Galfun as well, so go figure. I, I hope for a good match and I hope that, you know, these guys battle it out. And in the end, it's just a spectacle for us. right? <laughs> and circling back to... Those 200 people and perspective, another part about that perspective, not just the numbers, right? Because like you said, that's a movie theater, 200 people. But also like the number itself doesn't matter. Is the individual like that one or two or three people who actually take something away from that? That's what matters. Especially with a thing like a podcast, for example, right? I don't know how many people are going to watch it and listen to it. Number wise, it's, it's probably like a relatively big number. You know, if you put it in a room, it's a, it's a really big room. How many people are gonna find something life changing for them in this one? Maybe none, maybe one, maybe two, but (laughs) you know, maybe three, maybe five. It's not the whole number what matters. And from each, ep- like if somebody's going to watch all the episodes, you know, they might get a takeaway that is going to change their perspective on things from one out of a hundred. But if a thousand people watch, there's probably at least a few people from each episode, they take away something that, you know, is impactful and that impact with whatever you do, you know, with, with the little tweet, with the little thing, that impact. Is, is the beautiful part. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people steer away from that and don't do work publicly because, yeah, I mean, you're going to face a lot of, um, a lot of haters uh, as you go. And that's just sort of part of the game, unfortunately. And I guess as a society, we're still growing up to the fact that social media is part of our life and you're going to have to kind of stop being an adolescent and, uh, you know, throwing crap at each other's face and start start being more civil about it and, and have because like it's a tool for having uh, an informed discussion but any attempt at informed discussion in social media always gets drowned out by, by a lot of you know people who shout the loudest and they usually are not the ones who have the most interesting opinions
1: yeah I know Circling back on the circling back, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> No, I. When I was in the military, and I have questioned a lot of why I bothered joining and what I was in for, and um, I remember. I mean, no matter what, I'm able to walk away with a sense of pride for what I did, and the reason was I decided to make something of it, and I want to, with the short duration I was in, at least make an impact upon one person's life and i made it very well known i you know as i said i have a platoon of 20 uh soldiers and there's some rotations. so i probably was in command of 30 people you know, throughout the course of korea and i made it very well known that i want to talk with people and if anyone had any issues that they could talk with me and i could resolve you know help them in whatever it is and maybe i couldn't resolve something for them but maybe i could at least be an ear to listen on uh, listen to. And I know I, I had a conversation uh, that had meaningful impact for you know one of my soldiers. I helped a different soldier get his child over from Korea into the states. Um, I I helped another soldier that his wife was having issues with her pregnancy. You know, it's like I know for a fact unequivocally at day's end. Yeah, you know, while I was in the military that I personally had an impact on at least, you know, four or five different people's lives, you know, and whether I had a career in the military, whether I progressed to a certain rank or some people believe that I should have been in or not been in or whatever you want to view, I view it as a success for a fact that I was a leader within the respect that I was able to help the people that I was in charge of. Um, And it's the same thing now with streaming, you know, it sounds like I streamed to about 10 or 12 people and somehow that drew your attention. You know, I made a meaningful enough impact on, you know, someone up there on 10 people that it, it changed something. Berkey and Soto were talking about how Berkey just did a podcast. Um, I don't even remember the name of it at this point in time. Um, but they were talking about how you did a podcast, and Galifon reached out and said, "Hey, this is one of the best podcasts I've seen. It delves into a lot of meaningful, you know, topics out there." And Berkey and Soto were talking about how, you know, they looked at the views, and there's only 200 people who had viewed this podcast in, you know, three weeks mm-hmm. had been out. But one of them was Phil Galifon, and like the reach and influence that he has and what he's doing with it, and it's just like no matter how few people you believe that you have an impact on, upon you know, whatever you're doing in your life and your streaming and your podcast and your book and whatever it is, someone is reaching out, someone is listening, someone is watching it, and someone's able to derive value from it. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you hit on absolutely critical point that the only difference between having 10,000 people watching you and 10 people watching you is the amount of people that you can reach, that maybe you can have an influence on your life, but doesn't mean your work is any less impactful or any less meaningful, just because of how many people hear what you have to say. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's it's a very very good point. And you know what actually just came to my mind is an illustration to the point, uh, an example from people who actually reach a huge audience and yet still understand the impact that they make on individuals. Because, for example, you know, I got um, Mr. Richard Turner on, on the podcast some time ago. Um, and that was like two months after he did the Tim Ferriss Show. And Tim Ferriss Show is the biggest podcast in the world over and over. Well, one of the biggest in the world um, over and over again, right? For many years. So he did that show. And in fact, Richard Turner in in general entertained like 350 million people throughout the course of his career with his magic and his performance, right? He was super happy to come on the show. And we had an hour reserved because he has an extremely busy schedule. And we had an hour. We ended up talking two and a half hours because... That conversation was meaningful to me. He felt it. And to him, it was never a question of how many people are going to see this. If there's one person seeing this, it's enough. You know, same thing happened with uh, Michael Francis, who was an ex-Mafia boss. Uh, he used to be in a Colombo family. And, and this guy is doing... He's a public speaker nowadays, right? And he has his company and, and he transformed the individual. He used to be like one of the top... I believe Forbes listed him as the top 15 of all-time most powerful mafia bosses or something like that That was back in the 80s. He was mentioned even in the movie uh, The Goodfellas, right? So he's, he's been at the top of of his game yeah. in that in that part of the world and he was doing quite a few podcasts. He did the um, Patrick Bed david show, The Valuetainment show, which got him like I don't know, total of probably 20 million views. And he did um, another show, DJ Vlad, which like even short clips that he's doing, like each of them getting three and a half, five million views. He was really happy to come on the show because, well, he, I described to him what I want to talk about. He said, yeah, that sounds great. You know, well, compared to 350 or three 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 and a half million people uh, watching to like 300 people watching, on the first week or month or whatever, you know, on my channel. And it never came up as in like, oh, what did I do here? I I, I invested like an hour, two hours, three hours of my time for what? For 300 views? That number doesn't matter. You know, and at the same time, I had people decline to come on the show, specifically some people from the poker industry, funny enough, which basically... said outright like uh no i'm not interested your show's too small i'm like okay i guess we don't have anything to talk about then because you know it's uh to me i you know we actually i had a a few times i i um did a podcast but i didn't record it because uh the guest didn't want to record it and we still did the three hours and uh, this is the most interesting conversation i was having you know and to me, it's just about to be honest. Right now, it's just this conversation with you, and I'm so glad that you know some people find it impactful, etc. And I, I, hope that you know for those of us who are putting material out there publicly that their hearts in the right place. Um, otherwise, it's a pretty toxic place to be in.
1: I, I think we've talked about we've delved into it for me of like why I'm have the opportunities I have to be writing for CarPlayer, why I'm doing a podcast for you is because of the passion that I have for poker that's shining through. And I think the same thing is true for you. Like you're not doing it for the people right now. You're not getting guests in here. Uh, You're doing it because you want to, you want to talk with people. You want to know their stories. And the byproduct of that is putting out a podcast for other people to listen to so I think it does show like your passion is just like you want to get to know people and you have that interest in people and the more you follow your passion, I don't think it can do anything but grow and help, you know, more people. And, you know, eventually it helps yourself along the way where you, you look up one day and you say, I don't have 300 people. I do have 3 million people. When did that happen? Mm. So I, I think that passion definitely like through your work, through your you know, desire to just talk, Definitely shines through. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, and let's hope for the 3 million people. But
0: (laughs) that being said, I hope that I'm going to remain focused on the goal, which is the one person. And in this case, you, which I wanted to talk to. And you know what? It's been a wonderful conversation. Before we started, we discussed that, you know what? We don't know where this is going to go. And at some point it went completely off the topic of poker but very much on the topic of life and i think we kind of went full circle and uh, i highly recommend people watching um the work that you do on, on twitch i'm gonna leave all the notes um all the links in the show notes and just a reminder read the book city of thieves if you have time, I'm sure you personally are going to enjoy it. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Really, really entertaining, really interesting story. And yeah, go enjoy The Band of Brothers again and maybe maybe The Pacific. I know I'm going to watch The Pacific again because now, now that I think about it, I, I, really don't, I really don't remember much what happened there. Or I might watch Saving Private Ryan. And by the way, that opening scene, it's what a way to start a movie you're thrown into this bloodbath of complete, like you can feel that everybody is lost for meaning. Like you don't know what's going on. It's just the machine gun fire and complete chaos. And it's just a piece of art.
1: Yeah. I, I think that was probably one of the most, um, most poetic, meaningful battle scenes in a war movie, because of how succinctly it just sums up like the reality of war. Because mm. thankfully, I haven't had to be in the, either myself, but I've you know obviously plenty of friends have gone off, and it's just there's a sense of order because you have your training to rely on. At the same time, it's just a sense of absolute chaos. Um, a sense of loss of purpose and confusion and i think that's opening scene in saving private ryan just really details it more succinctly than any other movie out there yeah
0: absolutely and one of the one of the i don't know if anybody can disagree it's one of the best war movies of all time definitely for for what it achieved and for cinematography of it and the cast and everything and just the the feeling that and the emotions that it brings to every viewer it's it's just incredible and speaking of emotions um want to remind watch or listen to the jacko Willicks podcast with dakota meyer it's an old episode probably like two two three years ago but it's uh I think it's worth um, the three hours or whatever it is. It's definitely worth listening to to anyone who's not even like, even if somebody's is like, oh, I, I'm a pacifist, I'm not interested in war. It's not about war. It's about life. And um, I know it had a big impact on on me. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I would be really happy to, I, I personally recommended that episode to a lot of my friends and I had mixed um, feedback in a sense that some people couldn't go through the whole episode because they found it too tough and they decided to bail out. And there were people who went into the rabbit hole and, well, it it did have an impact on them as well. So if you, uh. if you listen to it, let me know what, what you think, especially, you know, you you, you probably would, because everybody's going to see it and understand it from a different perspective, different lens
1: we were talking about before I, uh, we started recording today and I'm about to have a five and a half hour drive. We're going to San Diego to take the dogs to the beach. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as you actually uh, brought that podcast up, like I, I immediately, very, very truly, I, oh, I immediately nice. pulled it up on my phone and so long as I can convince you know, my wife to listen to it <laughs> while we drive. Cause I like listening to podcasts um, whenever I do any sort of road trip and, Jocko Willings, uh, has been on my, my list for a while. I listened to some of his podcasts. Uh, you brought Tim Ferriss earlier. Like I've, I've listened to Tim Ferriss for a very long time, which is where Jocko Willings, you know, first origin, or, yeah. uh, originated from, um, for his podcasts. So I've listened to a bunch of Tim Ferriss. I listened to Jocko. And another one, um, that originated off of there as well is Cal Fussman oh yeah, I, Carl Fussman. Oh yeah I, I like him as well he's such a oh fun guy crap. and
0: his story of like what the hell did he do like travel <laughs> travel oh the way God. he did just sleeping on people's couches so beautiful. Like,
1: it's crazy and 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 i i go up on the train and i i find the the weakest grandma and i say <laughs> tell me the story of how do you make what was it baba baba ganoush or uh yeah goulash. some goulash. goulash yeah how do you make it i passed i, I, you know, I, pass, I pass a beautiful girl i passed the blonde girl that once you know looks at me with those eyes i go to grandma i said tell me the secret Gem. tell me the secret of your goulash like <laughs> like I, he has a podcast as well and like that's yeah. another one that's like absolutely next level like and you're recommending this one. I'll I'll check that you know podcast out. As I said, hopefully today as we make that drive and mm. the first Tim Ferriss episode with Cal Fussman, I think he has two, the first and second one on there. Just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I love Dr. The, Willing first stuff is
0: the first one. So the first one was good. was so good. I mean, the whole stories of him traveling and the stories about Muhammad wow. Ali and the boxing things that he was doing is just So good. What so what, good. A, what a guy yeah yeah there's yeah. there's so much great stuff out there to be honest like, i'm i'm listening to a lot of podcasts myself there's so many and i think we live at the well maybe it's not only now that is the time of sort of abundance so you're sort of spoiled for choice and it's harder to find the, those little gems in the whole you know vast majority of otherwise pretty useless stuff but it's, uh, there's so much for everyone.
1: Whatever you want out there, there's something, and it is almost that unlimited choice makes it harder. It's like when you go online shopping, whatever you want is there. You just have to know what you're looking for. It's, yeah. well, if you want, if you want a military podcast or, you know, leadership podcasts, I guess you could say, I would go Shaka Willings. If you want, you know, some storytelling and just diving into the back history of, of life and entertainment and, and a little bit of comedy that would go Cal Fussman. If you, hmm. if you're wanting, you know, leaderships of the industry and how people's habits form and how people develop over time, you know, you have Tim Ferriss. Yeah. You know, if you want, you know, poker and a little bit of life and story, you know, we got Mr. Runchuck's poker, you know what I'm saying? Like there's something for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like how do you, yeah. yeah finding it, it's
0: almost the hard part. And the thing is nowadays I think more and more, You stumble upon a podcast by a recommendation. Like I tell you, you check it out. You tell me, I check it out. You know, another one worth checking out, in my opinion, is Lex Friedman. He's doing an amazing, amazing job. And, um, you know, he has, it originally started as an AI podcast, like a podcast about AI and um, uh, computer sciences, but he had so many fascinating guests uh, on there. And now he switched from AI, still discussing with a lot of science, but more um, neurosciences and cognition and and stuff. And there's, I mean, the guy has like over a hundred episodes. So there's definitely something for someone in there. I know I listen to it a lot. And that's, that's the thing, you know, somebody recommends something, you check it out. Same, same as with my podcast. I don't know how the new viewers arrive to it, except for somebody told them you know, so if you're listening to it and you have somebody that you 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 can tell it to, please go ahead, send the link. And oh, and by the way, uh you might be interested to check out uh Henry Kilbane episode that we did with him. I don't know if you've listened to it already, but you're gonna learn something about the, the crazy Henry, uh the guy who who I don't know how the hell did he survive
1: the, 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 <laughs> the path that he went through. So anyway. I haven't had the opportunity yet. know uh, it's another one I need to listen yeah. to.
0: So maybe put like it I'm... put it on uh, after the Dakota Meyer because you're gonna be pretty we'll depressed after that one.
1: Get a little happy time from there. Yeah, I think yeah. so.
0: But the Dakota Meyer episode is gonna be a pretty tough one for for a drive. You know, it might be
2: a pretty tough drive. I don't know. Especially like for your wife listening, I don't know if you want to put her
0: through it. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably. Me, you, you guys, you guys gonna enjoy it, I mean it's. we you have a five-hour ride. It's a three-hour episode.
1: You have two hours to cool down and <laughs> reflect on life. I mean, we we were both military. She actually went over to Afghanistan. I never did, and yeah, mm-hmm. it's, we also at days and have a lot of friends that have been through. You know much more than most people ever realize so i I think we've both come to the reality of life within some of that of what happens over there yeah Um, yeah well you know what actually
0: it's it's going to be beautiful you listen to that podcast i'm sure you're gonna have a hug uh, after that Mm -hmm. and (laughs) it's uh it's definitely worth it so enjoy that Nathan, uh, thank you, man, for coming. Uh, I don't even know how long did we talk A for, minute. but it, it really <laughs> flew by. It really flew by. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, best of luck with the Galphon Challenge. Best of luck with Twitch. Keep up, uh, keep up the good work. And uh, we'll stay in touch, man. We might, dive, might do some, some more of that. And I'm going to tune in and watch you on Twitch um, sometime soon. Check out the Galphon Challenge.
1: Man, I, I appreciate being here. I really appreciate talking with you. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Like, I've definitely enjoyed it. Like, time did fly by. Like, uh, I hope to see you in the streets out there in the Galphon Challenge. Whatever you need, like, let me know. You know, maybe collaborate on something down the road. But keep in touch what, man. Like I've, Yeah, awesome. Great. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally, where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to Runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.